Okay. What are you doing? So we're here. I just forgot to do that first. I was like, wait, where are we? We're here. We are here. Sorry, you guys. We took a week off and I just completely. You've been working too hard. You've been working too hard. I'm new here. You, I have trips, <laughs> and that is exactly what I've been doing. Uh, it's too much, too much of that New York sunshine just cooking my brain this week. Anyways, <laughs> welcome to Casa Live, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I see all of you out in chat. Mallory, Neff, Skip, welcome. Chrissy, Adrian, Bill, Philip, happy to have you here. Mark Sliss in the house. Welcome, everybody. Philip Kirschberg, I see you. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Cassaw Live. It is Saturday. We are here to do all the things and stuff. And we have a special guest today. Yeah, things and stuff, Chris. Not just the things, not just the stuff, things and stuff. We have a special guest with us today. We have Clive Bates joining us very soon. Alex has some legislation for us at the end of the hour, updates and things. What do we got going on at the end here, Alex? At the end of the hour, we will talk about some updates for Colorado, HB 1064, Connecticut, SB 367, Alaska's SB 45, and Hawaii's HB 1570. Cool. Exciting stuff. Really exciting. Save the juiciest bits right for the end. Yeah. (laughs) But um, I guess really, really super quick, we'll do some hey, how are yous. I'm tired. That's my hey, how are ya? <laughs> I'm just going to get mine right out of the way. Kristen, hey, how are ya? Good. Um, survived this last week. Uh, had a sick kid, but uh, she's doing better now. And um, Always rough. Yeah, weather's been really great. It's been sunny and it's getting warmer. And I actually turned the heat off in the house. So that's always a nice thing point of the year to yeah, the spring yeah. finally hit in like what may uh the worst is that like awkward time where like one day it's warm then one day it's cold and you're like heat so, is on and then off and then on and off it's so annoying just ready I, to turn i just it turn it off and then get a sweater you know yeah, <laughs> like yeah. oh you're to. cold bundle up <laughs> exactly exactly but yeah other than that tomorrow's mother's day so yes. happy early mother's, mother's day to you, you and to all the mothers in chat here as well Happy early Mother's Day to everyone. Unfortunately, we're not live on Sundays, so we can't wish you a happy Mother's Day live. To whoever's watching tomorrow. Yes, yes. Day. To all the replay crew moms out there, happy Mother's Day to you. Alex, hey, how are you? Doing good. Uh, just a note, uh, the reason why we, we we bailed last weekend and rescheduled Clive for this weekend was uh, I, my wife and I had to go spend some time with some friends down in the Catskills, so... <clears throat> that was fun and uh, spring-like. Um, and uh, I actually, I after like more than a year, I have a, a NASCAR update for those Uh-oh. who are interested. Um, just, I, and I, I swear to God, I'll keep this quick because I know I'm the only one who cares. But um, uh, this we weekend, deeply. This, this weekend is the race at Darlington, which is a throwback race. And so teams will... Uh, use old paint schemes on the new cars to play, pay homage to uh, the, the you know greats of the sport. And uh, this year, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna share my screen because you're not gonna see it on national television. Um, let's see, Chrome tab, and uh, this one here. So uh, national. This won't make the news uh, or won't make the show. But uh, Harry Gantz, old number three skull bandit car is banned from the darlington pre-race show uh 
Uh, this is wow. not a competition. It's not, it's not racing in competition or anything like that. This is just a sort of a tribute lap that they take before. Uh, and uh, so this, this car is, is, is not able to participate in the pre-show because of the Skull Bandit sponsorship, which is not active currently. Tobacco companies are not allowed to sponsor uh, any sports, um, but this is an historic car. Uh, and uh, it's simply just a couple laps around the racetrack. It's no big deal. Uh, I don't know if the pre-show is televised, but um, the really interesting thing about this is that any time that NASCAR does this kind of throwback paint scheme or they race an historic car that's actually been in competition, they all have the Winston Cup sticker on the car. It's small, but it's there because tobacco used to sponsor the Winston Cup. Right. Um, so I just thought that was some interesting news uh, that, that came out this week relevant to something I like to watch. Uh, and also, of course, this is Skull Bandit, which was, uh, you know, this was one of the first things that the antis went after uh, claiming that R.J. Reynolds was making or U.S. Smokeless at the time. I, I get them all confused, uh, was making a modified risk claim in their marketing saying take a pinch instead of a puff. Right. Which I've said many times is simply stating that drink Coke instead of Pepsi. Right. There is no modified risk claim there. But uh, that was back in the 80s. Uh, so it would have been great to see a smoke free product and be taking turning laps around Darlington. But no, 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 we can't be trusted with that. So and it's um, almost like it's almost like a weird like NASCAR rewriting history or something like a, yeah. like we don't yeah, want to show this. Of, we want to ignore that this was a thing. And, you know, we're not going to allow this, this, I, I, I don't know. I don't know that whitewashing is the appropriate term, but we've seen this with all of the, yeah, that, I mean, that's, like that's kind of, that's basically what it is. Yeah. Their programs and, you know, I, it's not tobacco washing. It's not green washing. I don't quite know what to call it, but, but it very much is sort of this ministry of information, you know, let's rewrite the history and pretend like smoking never existed or use of smoke-free tobacco products so i mean really yeah. what are they accomplishing by not allowing that car i mean well, what, they're, they're protecting they're, the children how, obviously. How? <laughs> I just gotta protect the children oh, from the skull Lord. bandit 33 classic yeah. 1991 cup car all right i'm pretty well. sure when i was a kid i had a, a plastic like a big like you know play with nascar thing and it, and it was this car um, but it had nothing to do with me using tobacco products. I got most of that from my dad, right. sponsorships on a race car. Well, so. it's like I've always said, like how many people actually started smoking because of Joe Camel. But yeah. anyhow, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm interested to hear what uh, Clive thinks about this uh, whole. Uh, I know. I was I was going to try to segue like the oh, real bandit of the segue. hour <laughs> is our special guest. So I, I, I vote that uh, I vote that we just bring him in now. We just get this me. show started. Are we ready? You want to do the bumper thing? Are we, we, we're just going to play the deep dive bumper. Should I play the yeah. take three bumper? No. no. I think it's just kind of a, it's a free for all with the bumpers of this. <laughs> you got to coax Danielle into a special we guest do. bumper. We do. All right. Let's do the thing. Clive, oh, where am I? Where am I? <laughs> He's finally with us. He's been waiting so patiently in the back. Yeah. Welcome, Clive. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, thank mm. you for joining us on this uh, this lovely Saturday mm. evening for you. Mm. Yeah. So greetings um, from Nigeria, where it's uh, it's now nine nine forty two in the evening. So that's yeah, my time wow. check. How's Nigeria these days? Hot, rainy. <laughs> um unstable 
uh, yeah. wild, fun, strange, <laughs> all of those things. All the good uh, things. Yeah, interesting place. It's a very yeah. interesting place. You yeah. live there now? You know, you know, Ni- you know, Nigeria will have the same population as the United States by 2047. That's wow. our UN projections. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's wow. hard. Let me get this right. 70% of the population are under 30 and 44% are under 16. It's an wow. amazing place. Yeah. yeah. Wow. wow. That, is a, that is a population boom. That is a nuclear, nuclear population explosion. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Well, I'm sure that, uh, that plenty of, yeah, I see in chat here, Clive Bates is a warrior already. Uh, <laughs> welcome, Clive. Thank you for everything you do. So a lot of people here are well familiar with you, but for folks who are not, uh, could you tell us about yourself, a little bit about what you oh. do, uh, your background, okay. and kind of how you got into tobacco harm reduction, really? Okay. Uh, let me give you a, like a, a quick march through my CV. So I did a, a degree in engineering at Cambridge University. I worked for the IT company, IBM. Then I joined Greenpeace. Then I was director of action on smoking and health. Then I joined Tony Blair's prime minister's strategy unit in the British government. It was an advisor to him. Then uh, head of policy at the UK's main environment regulator. Then I went to UN environment program in Sudan then back to the UK to work for the Welsh government, then struck out on my own uh, if counterfactual consulting, returning to the harm reduction issue because I see it as the biggest conceivable public health win of all time uh, if it's actually executed properly, which unfortunately isn't being. Um, And then uh, through my family, I lived in Zimbabwe from 2014 to 18 and from in Nigeria from 2018 till now, because my wife is a diplomat. So that's basically my story. Um, I'm a kind of policy guy, really, but I think to be um, to work to be successful in policy, you have to have a bit of a grip of science, economics, behavior change, and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> and that's uh, we see quite a lot of that. So uh, yeah, that's me. That's my little potted history. Um, yeah, so I've had a, quite an interesting and varied career. But this is fascinating, uh, this whole tobacco harm reduction thing. As I say, you know, people think it's a trivial issue. You know, it's like, oh, it's just people vaping or whatever. They're forgetting 8 million people a year die from smoking. A billion people in the world smoke. Uh, that's going to continue just through intergenerational influence as you know young people are brought up in smoking households unless there's a dramatic intervention to change it and a dramatic intervention born of technology is now available the whole thing the whole smoking thing could be over in 10 to 20 years if everybody got behind it but strangely the people who should care about it are pushing in the wrong direction and slowing down what could be a very rapid and dramatic diffusion of innovation. Uh, And that has boiled my piss, to be honest, beyond anything else I've ever experienced. I'm, I'm sort of curious. I, this isn't, I don't know if this is, this isn't one of our, 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 our scripted questions that that we prepared for here, but um, you know, first of all, I, 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 I assume you've had the opportunity to look at the uh, recent research published by Dr. Carl Phillips and, and Mary Wagglover 
um, yep. and looking at the Surgeon General's announcement and um, that that this idea of the that that uh, initial shock echoing through generations and influencing people to stop or not start smoking. Um, and now that we see in the U.S. smoking prevalence among young people down below two percent, I mean, to me it seems like. Uh, you know, just 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 looking at that at face value, that we are we are on the precipice, kind of no matter what of uh, of of, of uh, I hate to say it, I absolutely hate to say it, smoke free generation, but it, it's you know with more yeah. parents yeah. quitting and less children being influenced by that and 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 going to smoking, that that perhaps you know within a few years the graduating class won't smoke at all. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I mean, I mean, this is already I mean, essentially a transition is already underway, underway through generational cohorts. So I don't think anybody who's 20, under 25 today will smoke past their 50th birthday. And therefore, almost nobody will in the U, in the US, I'm talking about almost nobody will die from smoking-related diseases who is a young person today. It's very unlikely they will die of vaping-related diseases because the risk is kind of in the noise of, if there is any risk at all, it's kind of in the noise of risky behaviours that people do, like, you know, drinking too much, eating too much bacon, having too much of the wrong sort of fat. You know, it's not, it's not going to be something that's a big killer from the current generational cohort as it ages because they will either um, stop, they will either never start smoking. They'll, they'll, if they're going to use nicotine, they'll go straight to vaping or at some time in their twenties, thirties or forties, they'll, they'll switch <clears throat> to vaping and that's it done. They're not going to be dying of these diseases in the way that, you know, um, my grandmother's generation died in their thousands because they sort of chain smoked Smoking was absolutely in their DNA right, you know, through through, you know, starting when they were 15 and going right on until they were in their 70s and they dropped dead with cancer. Um, you remember, you know, you have to smoke for a long time before you have a noticeable effect on mortality. So if you quit smoking before you're 40, you don't suffer any life expectancy penalty. So when people, you know, go on about how terrible smoking is. <laughs> Bear in mind, you can smoke for like 25 years and not suffer, you know, 15 to 40 and not suffer a life expectancy penalty. I'm not trying to encourage people to do that, but it's a measure of how resilient the human body is. So if, you, if in future people are, and they will, uh, if they're going to carry on using nicotine, switch to, you know, vaping or heated tobacco product or pouches or whatever before they're 40, the, the thing is gone. And that's happening with the high school generation that's going through the U.S. Uh, schools now. Uh, we've seen an amazing effect among young women in um, uh, Norway, where uh, smoking is regular smoking is down to less than one percent there. And what you've seen, though, is that fifteen percent are using snus. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they're not. And people are going, oh well, you know, it's, this is an ep epidemic of snus. Uh, because they didn't smoke in the first place, as if as if it's only harm reduction if you smoke first and then switch right. to something safer rather than go straight to the safer thing. Um, and I, 
Amen. This is the point that, that we talk about all the time. Oh. The, the idea that you have to, you know, that that harm is a prerequisite to using a safer product. Yeah. To me, it's absurd. I mean, the entire idea well, that you you have to smoke for you know x number of decades before something like vaping or or pouches or something that is appropriate for you is just is just completely backwards to me you well know? you know i mean I this raises are, for really. me raises for me a pretty fundamental point actually um because i mean you know everybody on the public health side me included that harm reduction harm reduction appalling burden of disease let's reduce that um and uh we've got these safer products substitute boom you get a you get a health benefit okay and then quit that that, <laughs> that is the wrong way of thinking about it for the long term in my mm -hmm. view okay in the long term you need to think of it as look there's a, a a legal legitimate form of substance use here nicotine and and the goal of policy should be to get the risk of doing that down to an acceptable level or at least have options to do that at an acceptable level. Um, and there's no harm reduction thing there. It's, it's just the same as saying, well, you know, we'd, we'd like substance use to be safe um, or relatively safe uh, at an acceptable risk within the normal risk appetites of society. And the problem with the harm reduction argument is at some point people say, well, look, all the smoking's gone. Now we don't need these vaping devices anymore because they've done their they've done their work. Let's get on with our real agenda, which is getting rid of nicotine, um, and uh, that's a dangerous thing, and we need to get rid of that too. And I think people sort of need to feel more strongly the war on drugs mindset that sort of mm -hmm. sits behind some of the harm reduction uh, people as well. It's a, you know, it's a difficult issue to raise because nobody wants to say they're in favor of nicotine use, just as no one wants to say they're in favor of, you know, cannabis use or opioid use or whatever. But these things happen. The question is, does it make sense to try and eliminate them? Uh, and if you do, do you just make the problem worse? And I think you generally do. Yeah, I mean, at, at least here in the U.S., you know, we've spent the last 50 years with a militarized police force against, you know, people who use drugs in this country. And it's it clearly has just made things so much better with incarceration <laughs> rates higher than they've ever been, skyrocketing overdose yeah. rates, a volatile drug market, you know, huge successes across the board. And, <laughs> and you would think, I mean, you would think that policy, you know, makers and lawmakers would look at, you know, uh, just the horrendous downfall that has been the war on drugs and learn something. But in, in, in some cases we are in this country, it's just very slow uh, that we're getting there. Um, but in, in, you know, regards to nicotine, it just feels like we're, we're just walking backwards. You know, we're, yeah. we're going the wrong yeah. direction. Well, let me, let me, you know, as a, let me venture a, a, a kind of theory on why prohibition is so popular, despite its absolutely abysmal outcomes, um, you know, that go from, you know, people dying in squalor, um, massive criminal networks, entire narco states, you know, you know, whole continents destabilized sometimes. Poli it's appealing to politicians because it's essentially an abdication of responsibility. You say, I've banned this, uh, I've used the most forceful regulation you can possibly dream up. It's now a policing and in some cases a military uh, matter to, to deal with. I, I, have ta I 
I, the politician, have taken the strongest possible measure. There's nothing more I can do. And of course, that is a gigantic abdication of responsibility because all the unintended consequences that I just mentioned, the, the, the violence, the um, criminal networks, the terrorist finance, the you know, deaths of despair and squalor, you know, all of that stuff is still real and it's still a predictable and predicted consequence of prohibition. But somehow politicians get to say, not my problem, law enforcement issue uh, or criminal, criminal behavior. And I think that's why it's appealing. And I think that's why you tend to see politicians like it in office and then they're sort of sceptical about it once they've left. I mean, I was of these arguments with people about, you know, we get, occasionally get an ecstasy uh, death in the, in the UK. It's usually because the product's illegal and is contaminated with something awful. Um, but the problem is if you make it legal, the politicians say, well, that death is then on my watch. I made it legal and I'm now responsible for it. And I have to deal with the parent and a, a, you know, a reporter with a microphone in my face. And I think that selfish sort of attitude to responsibility is behind the impulse mm. to prohibition. Anyway, I, I digress, but that's uh, just... Well, we digress point. a lot. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I mean, you're, <laughs> actually, you're actually teeing up I had some questions I expected to kind of get to eventually, but oh, right, I, I feel Alvin. like you might as well strike while the iron's hot. And, yep. and go. I, I think you sort of answered it, you know, um, but... I, some of the things that I've been reading, I actually, I just picked up this book, um, oh. which uh, sort of, I've just started thumbing through it. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I don't know if there's a school of thought within, you know, drug policy and drug research, uh, or if it's just a few people, you know, kind of getting started. But this idea that, you know, I mean, substance use, the, the pursuit of an altered state of consciousness, or just, you know, run of the mill relief from pain, has been part of, the human experience really for no. thousands of years. I mean, um, arguably we've, we have evolved with drug taking and yeah. some of the, the, I think part of that perspective is that for at least a percentage of the population, drugs are arguably necessary. And one of the things kind of coming out of this is this idea that as, as nicotine has come down, rates of depression and suicide have gone up. Um, and, and so I, I don't know that I, I'm, I'm not a scientist and I don't have all of those, those mm. credentials, but it, it, that to me, that seems first, you know, plausible. Um, we have an epidemic of pain and anxiety and depression, mm. at least in our country. Um, and, and people will seek out these experiences, but to tackle that, I think is a, just a huge lift for any politician uh, I mean, just just thinking about it, I think, you know, makes people a bit crazy because we're talking about going to, I mean, the foundation of society. Mm -hmm. It is the way that we have built the world around us. Uh, and I, I kept when I was thinking about this, I kept referring to like Rat Park, the Rat Park experiment mm -hmm. where, you know, rats are, are socialized and they don't choose to use the drugs that are freely available to them. Put them in a cage and they'll press the pedal until they die. And so, you know, we have built this environment where we're, we're, we're essentially in our own prison and isolated, more and more isolated. Uh, of course, isolation and division, the tactic of people who want to go after this particular behavior, marginalizing people, you know, stigmatizing drug use and so on, just sort of making things worse. And so ultimately, if there is a question here, and I, I do think you answered it already, but that war on the drug, no. uh, any drug is really kind of a useful 
distraction for politicians. Like you said, they don't have to claim that the, the disaster happened on their watch. They did everything to ban it. Yeah. But yeah. it's more of this sort of diversionary tactic from actually addressing the real issues at the core of society. Oh, I th this is a really interesting area for me, uh, Alex. Uh, uh, you know, especially as I, 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 you know, I confess I've never used nicotine in any form. I, I, I don't know what it's like to use it. Um, or I, I rely entirely on um, uh, testimonials, of which the Kassar collection is unbelievably persuasive, in my view. Um, <clears throat> One of, one of the interesting things in tobacco <clears throat> control is there's, there's a denial um, that there is any pleasure or benefit in, in nicotine. Uh, and I, I, you hear this a lot, that people will say, yeah, essentially it's like a treadmill. Um, the, o the only benefit you get from it is relief from withdrawal uh, and, and satisfying cravings. Uh, you're not actually experiencing any other benefits at all. And... I don't believe that. I, I really don't believe that line, but it's extremely strong. Uh, and, you know, there was a, uh, a, a great post uh, on um, Jim McDonald's vaping 360 thing where he listed nine benefits of, of nicotine. It's like, does anybody really want to talk about that? Did any, no. Does anybody? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, they don't. No. Sorry, I shouldn't even yeah, ask. I mean, we do, but, you know, people yeah. in tobacco control but, certainly don't. But it, it's, it's really interesting because it's like, I, as far as I can see, and again, I, I come at this having to, if you like, synthesize knowledge rather than have knowledge of experience. But it, it seems to me that it has benefits, sort of regulatory benefits, that it makes people feel, people who are anxious or stressed, makes them feel a bit more normal, a bit calmer, a bit more relaxed, a bit more together. And I, that sounds like quite a big benefit to me. And, and actually, it's really interesting. Neil Benevitz's paper, you know, Neil Benevitz, he's the, you know, he's a, a really decent guy and he's one of the great sort of gurus of nicotine. The science of opens with all of these benefits. He sort of, he kind of says, these are the things that it does, you know, stress relief, anxiety, modulation, concentration. And then we, we see these studies that say, oh, look, there's all these cognitive benefits that are, popping up so yeah adhd i'm absolutely convinced that that is uh that 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 will have a beneficial effect there um yeah there's a denial of that there can be any benefit here that it can be a functional drug in the way that people would recognize alcohol uh as a, a functional drug it makes you feel you know, happy, makes you feel relaxed, makes you feel a bit looser, or caffeine, you know, gets you started, you know. People say, well, you know, you maybe if you'd never had caffeine, you wouldn't miss it. But, you know, I, I, it's almost impossible to get a debate going about that or to get science done that, uh, that kind of quantifies what those things are or really sets out what the reward system looks like but i sorry i'm rambling a bit but it's the, re the reason i the reason i want to raise it is because it's why i think nicotine is a much much more persistent thing than smoking nicotine will be with us for all time basically or for for the foreseeable future smoking will not i think smoking we will find not necessarily yet but in the next you know, 10 to 15 years of continued innovation, we will find nicotine products that are sufficient kind of analog for smoking that almost everyone who smokes will find that they're satisfactory alternatives to smoking if they want to take nicotine or get 
some of the experience that they get from smoking. I, I, I don't know, but I, that's what I'm guessing. And therefore, the question is, for the longer term, how should this, how should this drug, this stimulant, be made available? In what, form should, what, what forms should it be discouraged, should it be prevented, should it be regulated to try and create a market for people who want to use the drug that is acceptably safe, i.e. within the normal risk appetites that we have in society rather than very dangerous? And that's why I think it's important to move beyond harm reduction and start to think of this as a, a drug or a stimulant that we want to be available in a way that's acceptable for users. And that that's the vapors will already understand that because that's smoking something that's behind them for most of them. So they're looking forward now thinking, well, well, you know, how do I want to use this drug over the next few years or decades? And, you know, or do I want to stop using it? So that to me is an important reconceptualization of the public health arguments around this from a harm reduction intervention, which is like a sort of pimped up NRT in the minds of many, to uh, the, you know, a safer or more acceptable form of a quite popular stimulant that people like and get benefits from. I feel like it should be a socially acceptable drug, basically, like caffeine. I mean, it, people no. can say, oh, I'm such a caffeine addict. And people go, oh, isn't that cute? Ha ha, funny. And they don't take, you know, they're fine with it. And but if you say the same thing about nicotine, something's seriously wrong with you. And I think that stigma also the stigma and then also with tobacco control, just putting so much misinformation out there about nicotine itself that it it's I think it's almost having a reverse effect that people that would seek out that it's okay to use nicotine. It is. Yeah, it is. Okay. Um, but smoking is really bad for you. So try these other products. Okay. I feel, I feel okay. Switching as opposed to nicotine yeah. is horrible. Smoking is horrible. So you shouldn't do any of it. Well, I'm going to be doing something. So I may as well keep smoking. I feel like it's almost as backwards. It, yeah. it's, it's doing yeah. worse in, instead of helping. But Oh my God. I mean, I agree so much with that. Kristen. I mean, it's, it's, the, the deep conflation of smoking and nicotine is is a real a, a real problem. And I, as you know, if you look at the hints data uh, for this risk perception data, you mm, know yeah. most 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 people think that nicotine is the agent in smoking that causes cancer, heart disease, and so on. Of course, it isn't. Um, but it's not just the historic accumulation of that misunderstanding. It's, as you say, it's an active promotion of that misunderstanding that we see now yep. because sitting behind tobacco control are not public health objectives of the type that I, I came into the game for, you know, dealing with cancer and heart disease and poor, you know, poor old guys on ventilators and trying to, you know, oxygen tanks to deal with their COPD and all these wretched ways of living that people have when they've been smoking for many decades. That's to me, that's to me the interesting area. Can you deal with that? Behind all this, there is actually a war on drugs mindset that sees, that is repulsed by nicotine use and yeah. it's internalized disgust for nicotine use and nicotine users. And that's the thing that it's sort of going after. And one of the great ironies of, of this, and again, you were mentioning Carl Phillips earlier, he did a brilliant paper a few years back on the economics of harm reduction, mm -hmm. in, in which he points out that as soon as you reduce the, um, the harms, 
you're basically reducing the cost to the user. It's a non-monetized cost, but it's still a cost if you get cancer and you die early and all these other things. And when you reduce the cost of something, you expect the demand to go up. And mm -hmm. if, you, if you look at the data on why people stop smoking, it's almost entirely to do, to do with I'm already feeling ill health. My doctor has terrified me about future ill health. I'm worried about inflicting ill health on people around me. And I'm worried about my kids growing up uh, to be smokers and them suffering ill health. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what happens to all that reasoning in a situation where there isn't any ill health or the ill health is trivial? Uh, and, you know, like... You have coffee. Yeah, you have, you're moving towards <laughs> coffee. And then you say, well... Actually, we've lost the whole rationale to be opposed to this thing. Mm -hmm. And then people have lost the rationale to stop using it. Oh, my God, the use could increase. And, you know, I, I always have this uh, thought experiment that I use with the, the, the sort of people who, who go white at the thought of this, um, which is imagine two communities. One has 20% uh, smoking and no vaping. The other has... 10% uh, smoking and 30% vaping, okay? So it's half the smoke. The second one is half the smoking, twice the nicotine use. Which one do you prefer, okay? And some people find that an extremely uncomfortable question. Most, most people in vaping and harm reduction find it pretty easy, is that they would get rid of the smoking and have more vaping. But for some people, it forces them to think about what they're actually in the business for, and that question is a pretty tough one to put to some people in, in, uh, in, in tobacco control. But I'm very much in the camp that you should expect more nicotine use because mm -hmm. you're making it much less dangerous. You know, and we shouldn't lose our minds because people take it up, realizing they're not going to drop dead with cancer, heart disease or COPD. Because the reason we oppose nicotine in the first place was cancer, heart disease, and COPD, not because we're against people using what is essentially a relatively innocuous stimulant compared to all the other stimulants and drugs that are on the market. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen to you and, and just literally everything that you've said so far. Uh, to rant already. So yeah, only I'm, early and I'm, I'm ranting. Behind, I'm behind you a thousand percent right now. Um, you're just keeping us from ranting. So, you know, it's okay. You're... All right. <laughs> So yeah, maybe maybe yeah. it's therapeutic. therapeutic. It is. And, you go yeah. for it. Sometimes you just got to get it out, right? Oh, but, man, um, I don't, rarely get the chance. Of, uh, but I yeah, do, this is great. I do have a question for you, one that is kind of one that we we prepared. Um, seeing as your your expertise in, in tobacco and policy in the UK, um, how does the UK differ from the US in regards towards uh, you know, attitudes and, and regulation of vapor mm. products. All right. Um, attitudes are very different. Um, let, let me just let, let's start. Let's start with regulation. OK, because um, some some people in the in the US uh, and worldwide think that uh, kind of, um, you know, uh, the UK is a sort of vapors paradise um, and. Yeah. Uh, kind of isn't actually um, the the main product regulation that we have in the UK 
comes from the European Union and was agreed as the Tobacco Products Directive in 2014. Mm. Um, it's, it's pretty poor regulation, but it's immeasurably superior to the regular, regulatory regime in the United States. Okay, And there are a couple of really important differences that I want to stress. The first is that it's a notification rather than an authorization regime. In other words, there isn't a bureaucrat somewhere that has to say yes before a product is put on the market. The product goes on the market, providing you notify into a, a big database and you put some information about the product and off you go. Okay, so there isn't a Mitch Zeller or a Matt Holman that has to put a digital signature on a, a, a marketing uh, approved order and send it out. And, you know, that doesn't happen. And for that reason, there is a vibrant... Um, vaping market in across the European Union. Most countries will have thousands of different products available. And the profile of the market, I would say, looks a bit like, uh, and I use this analogy a lot, the American beer market. So you've got some big players, you know, BAT, um, uh, PMI, you know, uh, Japan Tobacco and whatever, um, with the, the, the tobacco companies, Juul to some extent, and then you've got this long tail of uh, medium-sized, you know, and in the beer analogy, microbreweries, tap rooms, pub brewers, and so on, uh, relatively small companies for whom the regulation is not so overpowering that they can actually get into the market and the barriers to entry are relatively low, but not completely low so that any old bandit can get in and the market pretty well functions. The Tobacco Products Directive also functions around something that's different to the US, which is a set of standards. Okay, so if you meet the standards in the directive, you put your products, and there's some local national variation on what those standards are, so it's a bit complicated, but no need to go into that. But the basic principle is that if you can get meet the standards, notify the product, you're on the market unless some issue develops, and at which case action is taken retrospectively. And that has created a diverse, working, uh, rich market in the European Union and in the UK that serves consumers pretty well. Um, we also ha we have a few things like stupid warnings. We have um, some things like the nicotine cap at 20 milligrams per milliliter, which is like a dumb idea. But interestingly, when they agreed that, uh, and this is a, like a pure ignorance play, they agreed that because they thought that would give equivalent nicotine delivery to a cigarette. So in their kind of mad minds, and um, I mean, this is all settled by politicians rather than technocrats as well. Right. So it's a negotiation in European Parliament Commission and Council, um, which is all politicians. They thought they were setting a limit that would mean that vaping products had equivalent nicotine delivery to cigarettes because they didn't understand a damn thing about nicotine delivery, titration, um, you know, how users essentially control their own dose, modulate their own uh, intake to get the dose that they want. They didn't understand any of that. Uh, so we've ended up with that as a particularly stupid piece of regulation. And there's some other dumb things as well, but generally it works. So UK is different because I would say there is a consensus amongst the uh, leading experts um, and leading institutions um, and the tobacco control groups um, 
you know, and that she gets a lot of she gets a lot of bad press, but Deborah Arnott has done an amazing job at forging that consensus quietly behind the scenes. Not always to my liking, but she needs some credit for what she's achieved. Then you've got these academics like Anne McNeil, Peter Hayek, uh, John Britton at the Royal College of Physicians, or he was, not now, but um, Robert West, Jamie Brown, Leon Shabab, those, those um, uh, Shahab, rather, um, uh, those... Those those people have done a, an amazing job. You've got supportive group where where you have CDC in the United States, which is like a ridiculous anti-vaping propaganda machine full of, you know, vile amateurs. You, you, you have Public Health England in the UK or in England, which sort of takes its mission seriously and has some good people who've understood the big prize here and are pursuing it and that's the reason we see vaping or switching to vaping actually advertised on tv uh, by public health england in the annual stoptober uh, campaign and you would you would hell would freeze over before you'd see that from uh, from from cdc we also have a supportive regulator they don't play a particularly big role but the medicines and uh, the mhra the medicines regulator in the UK broadly wants these products on the market. They would like a medicalized product licensed as a medicine. Uh, they think that would reach deeper into the healthcare system. I agree with them uh, as long as it's done in the right way uh, and not the only way, if you see what I mean, as long as it was done in parallel to the other things, I don't think it's a bad thing to do. We've got pretty sensible guidance on workplace vaping and vaping in public places, which is, um, none of this, you must ban it, but advice on the pros and cons of it. And essentially, the decision is devolved to owners and um, managers of properties, consistent with, you know, some wow. property rights view of this. Um, and but with advice on on where do you do it? You know, if you're in a food shop or a play group, maybe not. Uh, if you're in, um, you, you know, if you run a bar. You want to do it. You want to have one room for vaping. You want to have the whole place for vaping because there's four other bars in the in the town. You want to have vape night on Thursday. That all of these things are all covered, and you get advice on the pros and cons, okay, and what to think about. Recognizing that for many of your customers, this will be an alternative to smoking, and right. you can do them a big favor and attract them, particularly in the poorer areas something else we could we've also i think got quite a sensible view uh and we'll see what comes out in the reviews that are coming up that this is a potential health inequity issue and and that you know because smoking drives so much of the difference in life expectancy between rich groups in society and there are there are cla there are gradients everywhere employment unemployment education poor education mental health good mental health bad mental health and so on all of the all of those gradients are really unhealthy, really damaging, and show that the smoking-related diseases are increasingly concentrated in disadvantaged populations. That is an argument that has resonance in the UK for reasons I cannot understand. It has seems to have absolutely no resonance with Democrats in the United States, who should be seizing <laughs> on that argument because that should be their natural consistency, but they seem to have lost their minds on actually relating to people who are their natural allies and it's taken seriously as a, a possible way that we could you know help to ease 
both the economic burdens and the health burdens, welfare burdens that are concentrated in poorer groups. And again, going back to the Carl Phillips, Maria Glover thing, um, you've also, if you're interested in kids in those poorer groups, then doing something about parental smoking is the best thing you can do for the kids. Not bloody <laughs> banning vaping. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, <coughs> forget flavors. If you really want to explain why people smoke, look at their environment. Look at the people, look at the significant adults in their lives, their, their parents, their guardians, their carers, their relatives, the people that they see in their lives and do something for those adults and you'll fix the youth smoking problem. And to be honest, that's, that's why you get a massive social class gradient in smoking in teenagers because the, the parents of the well-to-do kids have already quit smoking in, uh, years ago and that's why they are freaking out about vaping. And again, we go into the sort of, you know, the class nature uh, of, of this problem. Uh, but you'll, I, think, I think it's quite an important thing. But to return to the UK, there's a view that this harm reduction intervention could be beneficial in the poorest groups in society. And particularly if we can embed it more deeply in the healthcare system, because those people tend to have more contact with the healthcare system, you know, because they're not very well and they're poor. Yeah, you know the 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 forgot what I'm gonna say. The the panic over the number of kids in the U.S. who have had what, at least one puff in the last 30 days. It seems like they've completely ignored the fact. And I remember this from the early days of of getting into advocacy and looking up at the numbers when more kids were actually smoking. And you could go on to tobacco control websites and see uh, claims like. 3,000 kids a day have tried their first, you know, today have tried their first cigarette. Now, not that they would be, and then they would, I forget what the number was for the number who would actually become that, who became a, a regular mm -hmm. smoker. Um, and it seems like they completely, that, that whole statistic has completely left their brain when no. they say, all these kids are trying vaping, you know, now they're, yeah. now they're vapors, you know, it's like, they, they know for a fact that kids will try things because they knew that these 3,000 kids would try their first cigarette a day, but not that many actually became a smoker on that day either. It, it, this, uh, this again raises for me a really interesting set of questions because of, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a commentary uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, Ken Warner and uh, Abby Friedman, who are great, by the way, they're, they're both, you know, they're both uh, very pro harm reduction, they're very pragmatic. Ken Warner was the driving force behind the 15 president's srnt president's paper american journal of public health which i think was a brilliant effort on his part and those those guys um but um they're kind of like they kind of have approach to um vaping uh, and this is this is common in the uh, in the sort of public health side is like can we have our can we have our cake and eat it maybe maybe we can design regulation and taxation and communications messages so that um the kids are protected from uh you know from uptake and vaping and nicotine and then the adults can get all the vaping that they need to quit smoking um and boom we've won you know um and I'm like, yeah, uh, I don't think you can kind of separate things that easily. There are some things you can do. Obviously, 
age restrictions is is one of them, but don't expect too much of an effect from that. You'll just see a secondary trade in the products, uh, playground like market. Yeah, of course. And smoking. I mean, it's like we, we've, had, like, we've had age limits on smoking. It doesn't stop like 11-year-olds somehow smoking. <laughs> so I think the other approach to this is to say, um, why not stop losing your minds about teenagers doing things that adults do, especially things that aren't that harmful, like vaping? Okay, yeah. Get a bit more of a sense of perspective here. If, if you have a, a kind of approach of zero tolerance of anybody under 18 doing anything that an adult does uh, or vaping um, or using a flavored vape and, and you design regulation to try to stop every last one of them doing anything, then you will, you will end up with no market. You'll end up with a kind of rubbish <clears throat> that we've got in the United States where the only products that are available are the ones that people don't want. You know, tobacco-flavored, useless, kind of obsolete um, Vuz Solo and things like that. I mean, that is not the way to deal with a youth risk behavior that in, is inevitable. Uh, the, the teenagers will always do what adults do. They will always do these things, some of them anyway. And, and frankly, isn't that harmful? Yeah, it's I mean, not, we're talking, it's we're not talking like about a group of a group of people who were eating Tide yeah. Pods not long ago. You know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but if you, if you do, uh, I mean, if anyone wants to look at this, I, I did a I did a blog a while back on sort of um, twenty things about the U.S. flavor ban. This was when flavor bans were all in favor during the Trump administration, mm -hmm. and I put some data in there. And um, if you look at what actually kills teenagers. You know, like really harms them in like the like totally harmful way, like dead. Mm -hmm. Then it's accidents, and those yeah. accidents are road accidents, and they're road accidents yeah. for which you don't know this, but are likely to have a drinking under the driving under the influence element yeah. to them. Um, and it's like <clears throat> we don't even. I mean, even though those are they are tragic, and that is the dominant cause of uh, adolescent mortality. We don't lose our minds over alcohol. You know, yeah. we do, alcohol's much more dangerous for young people. You know, you've got driving under the influence, violence, um, various forms of vulnerability, uh, you know, um, from, you know, sexual or just general abuse. Uh, you've got the risk of accidents. Um, all of those things, much, much more harmful, much more acute than somebody just puffing on a vape um sitting on a park bench somewhere you know yet we have managed to problematize the um uh we oh there it is that's not the one uh not the one. that that isn't that actually one? the one <laughs> it is another 20 reasons but that's 20, that's, that's, that's the VLNC. Nicotine. that's, that's the, nicotine the vlnc one, one. it's yeah. uh 20 things you should know i think uh or 20 things you should know about flavors yeah oh god there we oh. go um all right Anyhow, uh, I promise that's favors. No wonder. I think a lot of it has to do with. I mean, they've so demonized nicotine that they seem to see this. Any any nicotine use, they're going to be addicted for life, and addiction is horrible. And I mean, I've, I've been having this argument with this woman. She's a vapor on Twitter about it, and she's saying, "Well, you know that they're going they're going to be have this habit even if they don't start smoking, and you know you shouldn't be putting anything in your body." And I'm like. Do you drink coffee? I mean, this this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And I think yeah. that it just seems like the 
like I've said many times, the nicotine addiction, which I don't think it's an addiction if there's no harm coming from it, is any worse yeah. than coffee. But that that has superseded, like you said earlier, the whole the fact that you were trying the, the whole reason to get people to stop using nicotine was to stop them from exposing themselves to the smoke. Exactly. And now it's just it's all about, oh, we can't have them using nicotine. We don't want them using nicotine, nicotine, oh. nicotine, nicotine. Oh. And you know, I, I read your, your comment to Health Canada about, no. um, about oh, their... You're probably, <laughs> you're probably <laughs> the only one in the house. I admit I did not read the entire thing, but because uh, <laughs> the one thing that came up was about the nicotine caps, because I've no. often got in, into arguments oh. with, um, I don't know if I'm going to say arguments so much, but I have discussions. Uh, very frequently, people will pop up in, from the EU or from the UK. Because mm. I mean, what, what you said, because you did that with David Sweener, right? Um, yeah. the, the quote that I had pulled out that was that we believe there are several legitimate challenges to the proposal for a nicotine cap, because that was one of the things that mm. Health Canada is following along mm. you guys with, that have not been satisfactorily addressed in the impact analysis. And... Um, and I was curious about what if you would talk about what those things are because oh. I all the time I get all the time I get people from from the UK and stuff. It's like, well, you guys have a you guys have a teen vaping epidemic because you don't have nicotine caps. You should just no. have nicotine caps. I mean, they come up with and like, no, we didn't even no. have a teen vaping epidemic. You, you that's ridiculous, and they think that we should do the same thing that you guys did. So can you okay. tell us why we shouldn't? The, <laughs> the UK people saying that are wrong they're, they're talking baloney they don't know what they're on about basically we actually have more smoking than you have in the united states amongst young people yeah, and uh, there was a there's an interesting study by the itc group comparing i think england united states canada maybe one other country australia possibly and it was quite interesting so so you know the the the, the, the sort of supposedly uh you know vaping paradise of uh, uh of england you could argue we didn't have enough teenage vaping because we'd still got a lot of teenage smoking going on. Mm, okay. So, yeah. so it's like, hang on a minute. We know, I mean, basically what, what we, what we know about young people and, and, and vaping and smoking is that there's a massive amount of froth here of kids who are using, you know, like a few times a month, pissing around at parties, blowing clouds, uh, being silly, being kids. OK, because that's what kids do. OK, they're not in some sort of compulsive substance use disorder, um, which is, you know, almost you, you'd think from some of the tobacco control people, the moment you pick one of these things up, you were, you're a completely right. you're like right. a nicotine junkie. Right. right. And then then you have the interesting group, which is the people who have a high propensity to use nicotine. OK, because it's in their head. And I, I've got I've just trying to you know do my graphics for the e-cig summit uh, next week and i went how do you illustrate the deep misunderstanding about this nicotine addiction is not caused by the device okay it's caused by stuff in the head and the stuff that surrounds you it's about you as an individual your your genes your men mental state your degree of stress the the influences that are around you, the extent to which you're positive, all of these things. And I, I remember um, it, it's in the um, amicus brief that we put into that uh, me, David Sweener, um, David Abrams and Ray Noora put into some of the U.S. Uh, cases against the FDA. You know, the, mm -hmm. the people who are challenging these marketing denial orders. And so what are, <laughs> there's um, 
there's this study in which um, uh, the guy has basically looked at all the risk factors for smoking, and he, he's, he's analysed, you know, 54 different studies and found 94, I think 96 different things that drive smoking, okay? And they, they're all things to do with you as a person and the context in which you live. They're not to do with flavors or you know patterns on the pack or they, they they may have some sort of marginal thing marginal sort of influence but they're much more deeply rooted than those those things and that's that's the problem with things like flavor bands you know if you, if there are deeper drivers for nicotine use and you take away the flavors the driver for nicotine use doesn't go away it just goes somewhere else it either goes back to smoking or it goes to well, let's make our own or let's buy some illegally or let's set up a, uh, you know, a black market in disposables or, or whatever. And this is this is sort of incredible infantile understanding of the underlying drivers of these um, kind of substance uses that is leading agencies like CDC and uh, FDA astray because they think I don't know what they think. They think you ban flavors. Someone who vapes will do what? They'll, they'll what? They'll they'll give up everything and join a choir. They'll do more <laughs> piano practice. The homework. They'll take up bird watching. They'll take up bird watching. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was what a, that was a CDC. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It's been an ongoing joke here. Like, yeah, bird watching. Or can we try bird watching? Or what are what are kids gonna do? You know, you you, you get know. away flavors. Kids will just go pray do their prayers before bed and read a book. Right? I mean, well, that's what kids will do if you ban flavors. <laughs> they won't I'm, do any I'm, other drugs. Look, I'm sure there are some kids who, if you did ban flavors, they wouldn't vape. But they're not the problem once. They were, ne they were never going to carry on vaping for the rest of their right. lives. They were never going to get sick from it. They were never going to get addicted. They were just messing around in the first place. The interesting group, and the only group that's really of any interest from a public health uh, point of view, are the people who are inclined to use nicotine intensively because of the stuff that's about them and going on in their lives. And with them, <laughs> in the great vaping epidemic, what you find is that the frequent users are very heavily correlated with the people who were using, uh, who were smoking or would otherwise be likely to smoke. Okay. And therefore, the vaping, youth vaping epidemic, when you strip away the froth of the faddish occasional use, um, which has all come right down again rapidly after the peak in 2019, you're left with the interesting group, which is the people for whom this is an alternative. In other words, it's a harm reduction effect that is either helping them stop smoking before they emerge from adolescence as hardened smokers, or it's diverting them from taking up smoking in the first place. Right. And you can argue that if you properly do the, you know, if you do the proper anthropology on the uh, youth vaping epidemic that the whole thing has been enormously beneficial because the supposedly bad headline numbers are basically froth and will disappear and will never become entrenched habits and what's happening is in the interesting group the people inclined to use nicotine has been beneficial net benefit no one and, likes that argument, but it does have the merits of being very probably true. So, and, and like you said that, well, like before about it not being instantly, it doesn't catch you instantly. I and mean, there's a reason why 
there's far more former smokers or people who tried smoking and never became smokers than there are people who actually smoke yeah. daily or become daily smokers. There's something in it that you try that product and you go, eh, it's okay. And then you never do it again, yeah. or you try yeah. it and there's something in your brain. There's something that goes, yeah, that's what I was looking for. And you go that's back it. and that's not, you're not immediately addicted. And they seem, and they seem to think that, if a kid tries it because it's flavored, which I never understood. Oh, look, it's gummy bear. Um, it's illegal. It's very expensive. I can get in trouble or I can just go buy some gummy bears. I mean, look. it's just the dumbest argument to me, but they're look, not going to get look. immediately hooked because for life, because they tried it once because of a flavor. I mean, that's, look. but that's what they're arguing. There are multiple levels of dumbness in this. Uh, it's like a skyscraper of dumbness, basically. It's the, uh, it's, it's the Empire State Building of, of, of dumbness at work here. But one, one of the things that you know, it's sometimes worth pointing out, first of all, we have thousands of flavors in, in, the, uh, in Europe, and we don't have a youth vaping epidemic. So if flavors were the big cause of vaping, why don't we have a youth vaping epidemic in the UK? Secondly... If you go back a couple of decades, you'll find that somehow um, <coughs> uh, 12th graders smoking prevalence. So that's literally tobacco flavor, actual tobacco flavor, not the sort of synthetic thing that you get in vapes, was sufficient for them to for uh, 30 to 40 percent of them to smoke. OK, we had we had very high levels of smoking prevalence among young people, implying that it was perfectly possible if the people wanted to do it to have high levels of nicotine use with actual tobacco flavor. Uh, and that, again, tells you that it's something about what's going on in the minds of the people uh, and their surroundings and not what's going on in the device or the product that is driving these the use of these you know, the use of nicotine. You know, I, they, I was just going to say that takes me on to one of the other questions that we had about um, you. One of the questions that I had for you is why do you think the UK didn't have a teen vaping epidemic or an Evali outbreak, which you kind of answered. And we oh. kind of know the answer with Evali, yeah. but I was going to point out that, and we were talking about Canada and, and then last week we had uh, Dr. Uh, Colin Mendelson on from Australia. Yeah. And one of the things that we thought was interesting was that Canada and Australia have kind of a kind of a closer tie to to the UK than the US really does. But they seem to have mm. followed us into the madness instead of following yeah. UK into some semblance of reasonableness. Why do you why do you think UK and yeah. Australia are doing that? Uh, okay. Well, for, for, first of all, um, First of all, um, in in the UK, vaping is sort of uh, positioned as an old gits thing. Okay, mm -hmm. so the the advertising for it, um, uh, it is it's you know when it's the public service ad advertising is is targeted at middle middle age older smokers who are actually the at risk population. They they are the people you should be most worried about. They're the people who where you can get the biggest health benefits if they switch. If you're, you know, over 40 and you're smoking, you're in, you're, you're starting to get into deep trouble with your, your health. And at that age, that's the age you want to get people to switch because they're not going to quit that easily, particularly if they're in communities with a lot of smokers. Okay. So that's been a, that's been a positioning in the UK and it's made it maybe less, um, 
maybe less appealing. Um, but I think we'll see more youth vaping. We're, we're bound to. We'll, we're just, we'll see. And what I'm hoping is that we don't lose our minds over it, that we just go, well, this is just, you know, it's like we have youth drinking. We, we have all these other youth things, all these things that adolescents do that adults do, and we shouldn't lose our minds. We should stay focused on the real goal. And I'm worried that we may go the other way. On the on Ivali, by the way, we did have an we did have an Ivali epidemic. We had an Ivali epidemic of American originated bullshit, which <laughs> flows across the Atlantic, you know, and sort of forms an information contagion. And and actually, mm-hmm. there was some good work done by UCL that that um, measured the uh, change in risk perceptions that was caused as that Ivali bullshit tsunami washed up on our shores right um, and you know one of the one of the things you've got to recognize is is that you know things like uh, there are you know news is global now um there are the you know the internet news providers like the mail massive in the u.s massive in the uk and this stuff just flows around the world um and and we did we, we obviously haven't had any cases of Vivali, or you know if, if they are there will be due to you know people personally importing contaminated thc vapes but we we have had an information shock on ivali that has been damaging and i you know i remember i i remember talking to a taxi driver in london you know it's the sort of like the, the sort of bellwether of of public opinion on such things oh yeah i used to vape but you know he, he comes out with this stream of stuff yeah the diacetyl's been causing lung injuries or something like that is mm. like a mixture of stupid talking points from right. from tobacco control at all sort of lodged in his mind somewhere and created a very negative impression and he'd gone back to smoking you know nice job um but yeah so australia oh, um <laughs> i felt the weight of that sigh oh all God. the way over here <laughs> I, I, I kind of, Australia, I mean, I feel, I mean, Colin Mendelssohn is just the greatest guy ever. I mean, how he keeps going, I do not know. Um, but we have patiently made our case over and over again. The, the, like everywhere else, there's just endless consultations and they do, uh, uh, you know, they, they pretend to be interested in everything. But in the end, the public health community, and it's kind of, you know, sociopathic enforcers let's just leave it at that um have got such a lock on uh, opinion and and are so kind of like bullying when it comes to you know maintaining the consensus uh you can't step out of line there no one does um or very few that's not true actually there are a few really good people in australia who do speak out yeah. but the the in the main organizations the, there's a lock on opinions on these things and they've taken the most extreme positions possible. And now they're wondering why they're covered in black market vapes uh, that are coming in. And uh, they're now having a new level of moral panic, thinking this should be even more prohibitive. And they're crazy. It's been driven by uh, Greg Hunt, the, um, the, the the health minister there, who's right. decided to make his name on the back of, you know, fighting big tobacco, which, of course, he's not doing. He's actually fighting the health of Australian citizens. 
Um, to and he's going to go. He's going to go after the next election. So maybe things will will change. Canada is an interesting case um, because at one point Canada, Canada was very positive on this. They had a they had very good leadership in Health Canada. Um, things were heading in the right direction. They had a really innovative policy in which they were going to have a series of statements, seven statements about how much better vaping was than smoking that, that would allow any vaping company to use in marketing and advertising. There were Nobody had to prove anything. Health Canada was going to do that and you were going to be able to use the things to market these, these products to Canadian smokers and citizens. Great. And then they, they had, and I'm not going to name names, but... Um, then they had um, a paper that came out in the BMJ that seemed to show that youth vaping and youth smoking were both rising simultaneously, hmm. something that kind of people like me had said, I think that's very unlikely to happen. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that imposed a huge shock in the Health Canada and Canada Health, not surprisingly, uh, if it was taken seriously and, and if it was true. Uh, but that's the catch. It wasn't true. It was a data error. Uh, it, was a, it, it was a mistake in the methodology. Um, and a couple of years later, after all the damage had been done and Health Canada had reversed its position, uh, that paper was corrected in a very insubstantial way. And that conclusion was reversed. Vaping had gone up and smoking had gone down quite dramatically, uh, was the reality as we'd expected all along. Um, so, yeah, and Canada now has got, you know, it's got sort of CDC level of crackpotness in some of the work that it uh, does. And, you know, the thing I think you were mentioning earlier uh, about their, uh, their justification for having a nicotine cap, <laughs> uh, it was almost impossible to work out where they, how they, they did a, like, like a lot of regulators do, they have to do a cost-benefit analysis on the measures that they introduce. Okay, one of the things to learn to do if, if you're if, if you're interested in policy is to try to follow the logic through a, a cost-benefit analysis. And what you'll find is it's extremely difficult to do. It's like hacking through a jungle of nonsense and distraction. Right. But when you get to it, this cost-benefit analysis was almost one hundred percent justified by assuming a gigantic gateway effect from vaping to smoking. Um, and and therefore, therefore, huge costs associated with smoking in terms of mortality and morbidity had been loaded onto the vaping side of the cost-benefit analysis. Oh, okay, But you couldn't find that just by looking at it. You actually had to send off for a special document from Health Canada to actually unpick that. And the consultation they were doing was was incredibly opaque about where these numbers had come from. Uh, and they didn't say anything like that. But what you found was that they were using an assumption that uh, I think the number was um, vaping increases the risk of smoking by a factor of seven. Um, wow. And of course, what, they, what, they, what they'd done was that they'd they'd done a they'd done a literature review and that they'd found some of these studies that show an association between vaping and smoking um which is we get back to this common risk factor problem yeah. which is it, it's the the same things that incline people to smoke also incline them to vape right not surprisingly um but it's not the vaping causing the smoking 
Okay, that's the sort of common risk factor com confounding or common liability theory. Right. And they've basically fallen for that or more cynically had adopted that misunderstanding of the common liability theory and put it into their cost benefit analysis to justify their flavor ban. Yeah. <clears throat> so, wow. By the way, is now stuck because the challenge to that seems to have uh, seems to have kind of made them think again. So oh, let's see. I hope so. <clears throat> Well, I think you've helped. You've helped convince. Uh, hopefully, next time I'll, I'll I'm going to take a clip from this video and show it to people from the EU and from uh, from the UK who keep telling me that oh, look, it's worked and it's worked in the UK. It's been great in the UK. Look, We've avoided all the same problems because we had our cap. Look, <laughs> like look, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I mean, I the the analogy I use it's like saying okay, we're, we're going to try and stop people getting drunk by. Um, reducing the strength of drinks that they can use. So you can only use wine, you can't use whiskey. It's like everything's going to be great. I mean, the, 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 key, the, the key to understanding this is that people try to get the nicotine they want, okay? And sometimes the device stops them doing... I mean, you know, you guys know more about this than I do. I don't know why I'm telling you this. But the <laughs> device can stop you doing that, okay? And the, 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 big, the big thing that the nicotine cap does is stop you having smaller more convenient devices that use stronger liquids a smaller battery and lower power aka the dual type uh devices okay or you know the pod type devices that use a strong liquid too but those devices are really important because if and if you if you're not used to this if you're if you're not used to vaping that's the thing that gets you going that's the thing that you can buy from a store and get a satisfactory experience from that takes you from smoking into the vaping world. And that's what, why the Juul product, I think, was so successful, because it was a, a, a very good consumer first time thing that was relatively neat, simple to use. It didn't look like a trombone in terms of its sort of complexity. Uh, you didn't need to know. It didn't need to have some sort of engineering degree to sort of like operate it. <laughs> Making and, <fun. laughs> exactly. Not with all of that stuff's incredible barrier to entry to vaping. Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things again, I'm going to rant here, but one of the things that I find most annoying is when people in the in the vaping or harm reduction world sort of become partisan supporters of their favorite device and against yeah. everything else. Yep. I mean, it is like the most stupid thing imaginable, you know, and the companies do this as well. And they're really annoying when they do it too. Okay. But things like the dual product create an amazing feedstock of people moving into vaping because they've been able to make that transition with a product that is convenient to use snaps on works straight out of the box and when it's in its strong version, gives a reasonable nicotine experience yep. for somebody who's been smoking. Boom. You know, then they can start thinking about wild flavors, new devices, once, that, once they've made the, the transition. taste comes back. And like, All of oh, that stuff. Yeah, one, one of the biggest ironies is when we hear, you know, or, or we used to hear this a lot, is, you know, vape shop owners, like, very much against these you know, uh, incumbent tobacco products, you know, oh. vapes that are in convenience stores, the views, the jewel, the what have you. No, and and thinking. the counterpoint to that is really like you just said, so many people, that's where they start. That's where they go to buy their cigarettes. Yeah. They buy this, this product, they start and guess what? 
from there, they're going to make their way into your shop when they want something oh my new God. and they want something else. If, if, if there's one takeaway, I would take that away. It's like, where is the feedstock of customers coming from? Okay, yeah, there are people who walk into a vape shop and say, guide me through this. But there are millions of people who don't do that. And I, I, think, I, I think, let a thousand flowers bloom. You know, and I, I, would, I would say, and I'd say to all the big companies as well, have a dog in every fight. Let everybody get to this in whatever way works for them. Okay. Okay. Be mindful of predatory practices, predatory pricing, um, you know, abuse of regulation to try and create market advantages. Those are all the things I don't like. But I think if somebody wants to start on snooze, fine. If somebody wants to start on a cheap disposable, fine. Let them try it. Let them let them get some experience. Let let them get going. Okay. Once you've got their interest, then okay, maybe try a jewel. Maybe try. Uh, a decent kind of refillable device, something that's easy to use. And then, you know, then they can develop their interest. But this idea that there's a right way, my way or the highway, I think is so damaging. Uh, yeah. And I just wish... I agree with you. Good. <laughs> well, I thought you would. I, know, I knew you were sensible people. But, uh, I, I, you know, and I, I think there are probably better ways of getting started than, you know, some better ways and worse ways of getting started on vaping that's for sure and some advice around that would be good but on the whole i would be like let the market let people find their own way through the market uh that's regulated about a level like beer so that you get the kind of diversity that you get in the beer market right. and you get the degree of concentration that you get in the beer market with these long tails of small providers and then you're you're into a, a and that's more or less what we have in the eu um then you're into a situation that can serve users' needs via a you know, million different pathways away from smoking and into these products and keep them happy as long as they want to carry on using nicotine. Right. You know, Alex, this I, might be a good segue. <laughs> well, I, I have all kinds of questions and things to, to contribute here, but I, I, I did want to... Um, oh, God, my head is swimming here. Um, I, I suspect you've written about this and, and watching kind of the policy movements in the States, uh, you know, our, uh, obviously our tobacco control industry is throwing everything in the kitchen sink at this. Uh, and we've seen uh, legislation introduced here in New York that would ban the use of, uh, well, it's, it's sort of in the vein of sink, banning single use plastics. And uh, mm. I think, uh, uh, is it Linda Rosenthal? Uh, Rosenthal and Rosenblum mixed up. Mm -hmm. One of them is a member of our New York State Assembly from the Upper East Side uh, yeah. in in the city, and uh, or Upper West Side doesn't matter. Upper East Side, uh, and uh, she uh, the, the bill, of course, would ban the use of of uh, filters on cigarettes. And I assume, I think this might have been something that was part of a California bill. It's single use plastics, so mm -hmm. it would ban mm -hmm. pod mm -hmm. systems. Um, mm -hmm. I, I guess there's a couple of questions there. I sort of liken this to, of, of course, you know, the menthol ban or reducing nicotine content in cigarettes. Mm. People will just go on the underground market to get their products. Um, but I guess another way to look at this is uh, broadly the single use products in vaping. Mm. 
as far as you know, are people in the industry maybe taking this as an opportunity to develop products that are recyclable, develop mm. the infrastructure needed to get those products back and get them through the recycling chain? Is, yeah. is, is anything going in a good direction with that? Uh, don't really know, actually, but uh, it will have to because, um, for one thing, I think this is an emerging thing in the EU as well. Um, and I, I don't, I mean... It, to be honest, I think the, it's a pretext, you know, the, an environmental pretext for a essentially a, a little bit of gratuitous prohibition. Um, because if you wanted to take a broader approach to plastics, that's not where you would start, to be honest. And particularly if you were mindful of the public health benefits of people switching from smoking to vaping, you would you would have that philosophy of let them get to it whatever way they want. Um, but nevertheless, it's a pretext because the underlying policy intent is to be prohibitive about anything to do with vaping that they can get away with. And that's why the, there's a flavor. It's basically forms of um, partial prohibition that taken together will ultimately add up to a total prohibition. So you know, a partial prohibition on nicotine liquids, prohibition on flavors, single-use plastics, um, you, you know, slap on attacks, um, you know, sure, you eventually the, 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 cum the cumulative thing is a de facto ban. You know, that basically the value proposition that the product offers is no longer attractive to the user or competitive with cigarettes. So you basically have no market for it, uh, which is, you know, and, and, you know, there's no, there's no doubt that the Bloomberg complex is prohibitionist uh, because as soon as it's out of sight, outside um, the uh, developed countries, outside the EU, outside the US, it's nakedly in favor of absolute prohibition as they, as they pulled off in India, 100 million smokers. Um, and they pulled, that, they pulled that off in India because they went straight for prohibition. Now, they don't think they can get away with that, uh, in the United States or Europe or Canada. So they have an adaptive strategy, which is to do prohibition by stealth, by, you know, the accumulation of prohibitive measures that in total amount to a quasi-prohibition. Death by uh, a thousand that's, cuts. That's, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, there, there is not a regulation that they do not like. Um, there's nothing where they say, oh, no, 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 that would be too much, or right. that could be counterproductive, or there may be unintended consequences, or there could be a trade-off between our different objectives here. There has never been a, a regulation that they don't like or don't want strengthened, okay? And that's basically the, that's their tell on the fact that they're ultimately prohibitions, prohibitionists in this field. And, you know, if they weren't, if they were trying to optimize regulation here, you would see a lot more discussion about unintended consequences, about trade-offs, uh, about different categories. You know, we were talking earlier about different categories of youth, youth with a propensity to smoke versus youth with a propensity not to smoke, are very different groups. You never see any discussion about the difference between those groups in Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. They should be the authority on kids, but they're not. Their kids are a particular uniform reference child 
that is trotted out for campaign purposes. <laughs> They're not actually oh, so any actual actual kids who actually live. Some of which <laughs> some of which have real problems and would likely be smokers in the absence of vaping. So. Um, and I, I think that I think they're prohibitionists because that's what they do. That ultimately is where they are. They 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 their leaders uh, and their organizational culture is sort of bellicose. It was brought up in the tobacco wars, um, you know, from the 80s and 90s. <coughs> the world changed a great deal in the 2000s and much more again in the 2010s. And they haven't adapted to that. They're carrying on fighting wars. And to fight a war, you need an enemy. And their enemy is the new thing. And the new thing is vaping. So they've just swiveled their gun turrets onto that. And they're now blasting away at that. I just shared the article, that fighting the wrong war article in the chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The description too. So that was... That's exactly the case. I mean, that's exactly... And that one of the things we were talking about is vaping almost got caught in the middle between... That's where our title came from today is caught in the crossfire. It's like, yeah, yeah they're, they're aiming at us again, but really it started off of... It's this war between tobacco control and big tobacco that yeah. we got stuck in the middle of. Yeah, I t- I, I've just seen uh, Skip Murray's question. Uh, uh, that, yeah, this I is a it's... question from a little while ago that I keep kind of hovering over because <laughs> I, I really want... This is an excellent question, and I, I, I'd yeah. love to hear your your opinion on it. Oh well, I think it's I think it's I mean it's a question and a statement, uh, but it is true. I think, uh, and if if you look, if you look at if you look at what's really you know what gets the juices flowing with these guys, it's and look at uh, campaign for tobacco free kids fighting the hardest fights for twenty five years or something. I think is is then is their new slogan. It's all about martial rhetoric it's all about bellicosity it's all about these guys being heroes fighting off a predatory industry that's trying to hook your children into addiction and keep them as company that's their mindset and that's what they do and the fact that the world is rather different to that now and that the tobacco companies have uh, to varying degrees uh, a, a, an approach that wants to get out of combustible products and into the nicotine market and beyond nicotine market that's more or less the strategy of of the two largest companies pmi and bat and to some extent ultria um then they're not adapting to that they're just carrying on as if that hasn't happened and they're trying to reshape their assumptions about the world their interpretation of science in some cases actual science to shore up the case for a continuing and permanent war with the suppliers in that market and i think they're making a mistake in doing that Uh, i think we could move an awful lot faster um if i mean it's going to sound bizarre but if we followed the advice that philip morris gives Philip Morris International gives, rather than the advice that Campaign Tobacco Free Kids gives, we would end the smoking-related disease epidemic much faster. What a world to live in. (laughs) What (laughs) a time to be alive. The advice of of tobacco companies outweighs, you know. Listen, I'm going to, I'm starting to think, you know, that some of the behaviors that we see in the tobacco control community are worse than the tobacco companies ever were and more damaging um, and, and actually even less ethical. And the, the, reason, the reason is, I think, the tobacco companies were 
absolute bastards. There's no doubt about it. They lied. They cheated. They bought science. They, they did, you know, they did the worst things. Okay. But most of that ended at the turn of the millennium after the master settlement agreement, after they were kicked, you know, kicked to hell in court after they were, their executives were humiliated, I think they realized that that could not go on. Uh, and they would just assume greater and greater liability the more and more lies that they would take. And it would ultimately wipe, that they would ultimately be wiped out in court if they carried on. And they more or less stopped and more or less started telling the truth. I mean, you know, no worse than any other company anyway. Tobacco control people now. Uh, and I think what they did was bad because they were they were merchants of doubt. They were in people who wanted to carry on smoking, wanted a reason to carry on smoking. They were providing those reasons. They were providing the doubts that said, hey, you know, there's no point here. Oh, look, here's a light and mild cigarette. You know, that'll keep you that'll keep that'll keep you. So, oh, look, here's a filter, you know. Um, and, oh, you know, we, we don't we don't really know where the cancer's coming from. It's something to do with asbestos, blah, 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 whatever. Okay, completely despicable. And I spent my earlier time at Ash fighting some of that stuff. Um, but I believe more or less that is gone now. Tobacco control people now are telling uh, sometimes lies, sometimes misunderstandings, sometimes groupthink about much safer alternatives, but beyond any reasonable doubt, much safer alternatives. They are implying that there is equivalence in risk between vaping and smoking, which I can only call a big lie. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's something American audiences will be familiar with. This is a really big lie. They have maxed out Ivali. <coughs> Traces of Ivali propaganda are still present in the websites of American Heart, American Lung, American Cancer, CDC, you, you've still not seen them lay that demon to rest, even though beyond any shadow of imagination, there is no link between Ivali and nicotine vapors. Absolutely not. It's not even a doubt about that. There cannot be a link. Okay. Yet that is still there in the propaganda. Now, what's that doing? It's, it's, and you look at the risk perceptions. It's now a majority of Americans think that vaping is as dangerous or more dangerous than smoking. What? You know, I mean, if if you've created that, you have you are the worst merchants of doubt of all time. And and the reasons I think they're worse than the tobacco companies is because nobody ever trusted the tobacco companies. We always knew they were dodgy. We always knew they were a bunch of crooks. These people come with an endowment of trust and respect because they are the American Cancer Society, the American Heart Association, the Center for Disease Control, even the Food and Drug Administration. They are, they are pillars of the American health establishment, and they are lucky that they are respected and venerated as those institutions, and yet they are abusing the reservoir of trust on which they depend to create misinformation, which actually harms living Americans who could be prevent that harm could be prevented and they could be diverted away. Instead, they are creating the doubt that keeps them as smokers. And that is utterly despicable. And the fact that there's some, you know, billionaire kind of chancer who's pouring money into all of this based on ignorance of what he's doing and indifference to the consequences just makes it worse. And all of these organizations have been polluted with money from that dis, dis, 
despicable, disreputable source, which totally unaccountable, has no processes of internal government, refused to meet high-level academics who wanted to talk to them about it, just slam the door, and it's just piling money into misinformation. It's shocking and it's despicable, and it's worse than the tobacco companies ever were. End of rant. I need to stop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were originally going to call this show The Fog of War, and you pretty much... That's, <laughs> oh, my God. Because <laughs> it's kind of what, mean, it, what uh, it is, with the misinformation and propaganda, you know. Well, I, I feel very strongly about this. I, I, and, you know, I'm, I'm often... I'm often, you know, I, I often get a, a sort of little kind of pushback from public health. So, Clark, don't be so ridiculous. No one's as bad as the tobacco companies. I don't believe that's true. I think if you objectively look at the way these clowns have abused their endowment of public trust, it's absolutely despicable. If you look at the results and what people... Nobody ever thought smoking was safe, really. Right. No one ever thought smoking was safe. But now... They think that vaping is as dangerous as smoking. A majority of Americans think that. Oh, my God. How did you achieve that? Terrible. Yeah. And some of the stuff the drug companies have done, but they get a pass so often. I mean, there's oh, there's man. only a fringe, like the mass majority of Americans uh, still vilify big tobacco and everything. Yeah. But, but drug companies, I mean, stuff comes out all the time about yeah, stuff that they're doing and it's like it seems like if you have a problem with it it's like oh slap on the hand and let's go yeah. back on to business you know and a, but and big tobacco is the worst because they're selling yeah. cigarettes that people want <laughs> i, I, I mean you know big 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 i mean the best way to think i mean people hate big tobacco and they've done a huge amount to earn that earn the hatred but the best way of thinking of big tobacco are first of all they're inevitable OK, if if you have and every government does this, even Bhutan now does this. If you have a legal market for tobacco, if you regulate it and tax it and you allow it to be sold, there will be a tobacco industry. Yeah. There just has to be. There, someone has to supply that market. So the, they are inevitable and they do compete to sell as much stuff as they can. That's what they do. They're on earth to sell, compete, win market share, make profits for their shareholders. Get over that. That's what they do. Now, you, you want to take a realist approach to this. Stop doing your little warrior dances about how bad these guys are and start to think about what their incentives are um, and how you could change those incentives. So you have a number of things that will change the market. Okay, and I'm going to blog on this fairly soon, but a number of things that will change the market in a way that will end the cigarettes, not the sort of ridiculous bans or VLNC things that, you know, the tobacco control people love. But what you do is you, you change the information environment. Okay. So what people are saying, what the, what they're communicating about the alternatives and the risks. Secondly, you change the regulatory environment to be risk proportionate. Okay. So that you're tough on the cigarettes and you're not, and you're, you're kind of much more liberal uh, focused on consumer benefits with regulation of the vaping and non-combustible tobacco products. You change the fiscal environment to create uh, an economic incentive to, um, uh, to switch. You, you, you take care of the competitive environment because you don't want to create oligopolies that will basically pursue industry interests rather than consumer interests. That's, you know, a classic understanding of trust busting is that you don't want oligopolies 
And what's FDA doing? It's creating, it's got an oligopoly in the cigarette sector, so it wants to create one in the vaping sector. Okay, you think about the, <coughs> excuse me, the environment for innovation. Um, you know, you want the new products to come out to meet consumer needs. You want you want people to think about, well, how do I solve the problem of these people who say they don't like vaping because X, uh, or they find it difficult to switch to vaping because of Y, uh, or uh, how do you get them to compete to produce more interesting products that will hold people and stop them relapsing, or get them to go from dual use to exclu exclusive use? What do you do to give them more reassurance about safety? Uh, that these things are not going to burn out, they're not going to get dry hits and all that sort of thing. You want an innovation system. Now, again, FDA makes innovation incredibly difficult because of the lead time and the cost of bringing a new product to market through a PMTA or a substantial equivalence. Or you can't even do that for vaping, but a, a new PMTA, every time you do a slight, slight tweak to the product, nobody's going to do that. The innovation is going to be happening outside. And then finally, you know, what's going on with the consumer? What, what do consumers really want? And what are the what's the consumer ecosystem doing? Uh, the consumer ecosystem for traditional smoking cessation medication and NRT is non-existent. The consumer ecosystem for, uh, and, you know, I include kind of vape shops in this in some ways. I mean, it's not quite the same, but that's a very powerful driving force, okay? Take care that you don't destroy that in some sort of careless way. So if you get those kind of six environments right and you get them all sort of humming together uh, in, in concert with a view to getting rid of the cigarettes, uh, I'm, I don't mean get rid of them in the sense of ban them. I mean drive them yeah. out in the – you know, and again, the example I would use is, you know, we, we, we've had – an organic migration through innovation in music. Start off with vinyl, go to digital CD. Then because you've got digital, you get an innovation in chip density. You can get to music players, the kind of I, you know, iPod, and you can have you know, music in your phone. Then you get a bandwidth enhancement and you can have streaming. Okay. No one has ever stopped you buying a vinyl record, and there are still some people who like vinyl records. Good on them. But the market as a whole has moved into these new technologies as the underlying technologies, digitization, chip density, and bandwidth have enabled music production, you know, music delivery uh, to shift onto now uh, a, a kind of streaming platforms. Now, what we're going to see, I think, is something similar with vaping. You just or with the non-combustible alternatives. You'll see, in, we've already seen the innovation. The key, keystone innovation is battery density because it allows you to heat you know, enough liquid for enough of the day quickly enough to create a, an inhalable aerosol that doesn't run out and the battery doesn't run out in two minutes. That's the key. And then you, then you, get, you, you get a further set of innovations to do with um, protonation and the use of acids and the creation of nicotine salts. You get, um, and you guys know much more about this than me, but you get things like temperature control. You get much more um, user feedback um in the in the market you get a greater diversity of of flavors uh building over time these innovations over time drag the market away from the the sort of tired value proposition of smoking into these new value propositions built out of these different environments and that's how i think the change will happen over time
Wow. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> vaping is such a, you know, just a consumer-built product from the ground up. Um, you know, it, it was consumers that drove innovation. It was reviewers uh, that drove innovation, reviewers working with you know, companies in China. It was small manufacturers designing and, and literally machining their own products that they wanted to use, that they wanted to see that really got us, you know, from the 2009 SIGA likes to the devices that we have yeah. today. And it, it really is truly an astonishing thing for folks who have been around since 2009 to right. watch this innovation happen. Like Kristen, you know, I didn't start vaping until 2017. I tried my first e-cigarette in 2011 and it, it just, it wasn't for me at the time, but it really is, you know, it's just an astonishing thing to kind of amazing go back and, look at and look at what really drove innovation. And it was, it was consumers the entire way. Yeah. You know, I mean, your average reviewer that was that was putting information out there, giving feedback to companies or working with with manufacturers, yeah. whatever. They're also consumers, you know, reviewers are consumers. And that it, it's it really is astonishing, like how quickly and how much just your your end user drove this industry in, in such yeah. a short span. I, 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 yeah, think, I mean, the pay, I, pay, sorry, I, Alex, go on. I, I think Phil Basardo actually has a really good story about that where he was reviewing uh, an Inakin product, I think. And uh, he had posted the review and, and noted uh, some things that he would change. And I, I don't know how long it took. I mean, it was maybe a matter of a week or something like that. And oh, Inakin really? sent him the product back <laughs> with the changes Amazing. that he had mentioned on his site. So it really was that, yeah. that short of a feedback loop. And he said, oh, yeah. "Just get a PMTA. It'll it'll only take uh, it'll only take quarter of a million pages and uh, and two years." <laughs> but yeah. that but that that's how that's how the innovation model works, uh, uh, essentially. And this is why the FDA's. I mean, it's, an, an, uh, it's not really had enough discussion this, but the FDA's approach is totally anti-innovation, because the way innovation has been working in this market has been a try it and see thing you know mm -hmm. you make an you make a change to the product you you get a you pick up a tip from a renewer a reviewer and if it if it takes off boom it's it's a successful innovation if it doesn't you stop making it and do something else and that that's a a, a sort of almost like a natural selection evolutionary style of of innovation which is how it should work um and i i i agree with you logan i mean the 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 i mean one day i think innovation uh uh, in, innovation uh, scholars will look back on the period between uh, sort of 2010 and 2022 and go, oh, my God, what an amazing uh, rate of progress happened in that market over that period. And I think, you know, I would say now that all the studies that were done in 2013, you know, forget them. You know, they were dealing, they're almost dealing with completely different products yeah. Yeah. That, are, that are those on the market. And you still have this sort of thing that, well, e-cigarettes, we found, you know, that's, let's cite Dutra and Glantz from 2013 or whatever it was, uh, uh, you know, or 2013 device. That's, that's like an ancient history now. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a rubbish study when it was done. Sure, it's like it's a rubbish study done on obsolete products. Yeah. Well, yeah. think about yeah. yourself. Think about your cell phone exactly. in 2002. I yeah. mean, in, in, in 2001, I had 
uh, a flip cell phone. I had a separate Palm Pilot. I was still using a calendar. I had a paper book thing mm. that, you know, organizer. I mean, imagine if the FDA had taken over cell phones in 2003. Yeah. You know, yeah. where we would be today, we'd still have pay phones at home. Rotary line. dial. We'd all be wearing helmets to protect us from the radiation. <laughs> the point you made about natural selection, though, is is really, I've never really thought about that way, but it, it it's true. I mean, it, you know, and through a lot of people will talk about kind of the heydays of vaping, the golden mm -hmm. era, 2014 to like 2016, that kind of era where we just had this swell of products. I mean, mm -hmm. companies were putting out a new tank or a device seemingly like every two to three months and you have all these companies i mean it was for a lot of people overwhelming even when i first started vaping in 2017 getting online and looking at products i was like oh my god you know there there's so much but every little product did something a little bit different and all the best qualities through that the swell of those products they they slowly became standards you know better airflow better this but you know tanks stop leaking mm. and things like that this device yeah. did this a little better and there's still such a you know wide range of things for people to use but some of those earlier things and some of the stuff that has come out along the way that just didn't make it it didn't stick you know survival of the best those products mm. didn't stick around and we've kind of abandoned some of those things but you're I right natural selection is the greatest way to think about that and i guess I guess I've kind of always thought about it that way, but I never put it quite into that perspective. Well, if and anyone's interested in this, I, I would I, I would really recommend Matt Ridley's books on uh, on innovation. Uh, and Matt Ridley uh, is uh, he's a very thoughtful. He's a, actually a, a Lord Ridley. He sits in the House of Lords in Britain, but he's a, he's very keen on vaping. He's very pro vaping, and he's understood the. Uh, the innovation story here, but he writes brilliantly on innovation as a form of evolution and natural selection. He said books yeah. are absolutely brilliant. Um, but yeah, a bit, let me let me just say another thing about innovation though, because it's a it's a, there's a double edged sword here. Because the innovation that you're talking about and the innovation that we like is innovation that produces benefits to consumers. Okay, there's another type of innovation that we've got to be careful of, which is innovation that is driven by regulation that is designed uh, to make the products less appealing uh, or more difficult to use. So uh, one of the things that concerns me is this idea, for example, that you should have like Bluetooth enabled locks on products that, that, that would, uh, you know, that would prevent anybody under the age of 18 ever using one of these things because it would be linked to an app on the smartphone and blah, blah, blah. Um, and the, you a can couple just of a cigarette. Oh, that's just, yeah, ah. exactly. <laughs> so a couple of companies have flirted with this because they think it well, it would ingratiate them with, uh, with FBA and, and everything. So they'd be able to say, look, no Don't one can me. use our product. No one under 18 can use our product. Basically no one would be able to use your product, uh, because you've made it too complicated. Um, but of course what would, what would happen is that with those things the, the problem users the young people just use something else but the danger is it would become a de facto standard and then you've created a barrier to consumer uptake which for many people would be insurmountable because they'd need a smartphone they'd have to install an app they'd have to have some sort of id they'd have to make a bluetooth connection blah 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 all of which would be far beyond you know, a large number of possible users of these uh, of these products. So I I, th I think I always think there is 
there is good regulation and bad regulation. Good, good regulation generally creates benefits for consumers. It means that the, the product is as described. Uh, it means that it doesn't have things in it that are, you know, cancer, you know, cancer causing, mutagenic, teratonic, whatever. It it's doesn't, you know, it basically is as safe as it can be. It doesn't have uh, ridiculous contaminants. It doesn't electrocute you. It doesn't burn you. It doesn't fall apart in your hands. That's all good because that's all good for the consumer. Then there's another type of regulation, which is becoming dominant, actually, which is designed not in the interest of the consumer, but in the designed to make the products less appealing to consumers uh, and therefore designed to deter use. Uh, And and in theory, it's designed to uh, meet the interests of non-users to the extent that they have an interest in not using these products. And that is the flavor bans, the uh, nicotine limits, uh, the things like the postal bans and all these other the, all these other things that are designed to ultimately make it harder to use the product. And I, I think it's good conceptually to make a d- distinction between those because there's a lot of, you don't want to be a complete libertarian on this because there's a lot of regulation that's potentially good for users of these products. It's still astonishing to me that we can have battery fires, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's like that is a classic problem for a regulator to sort out, that you shouldn't have these things blowing up in people's pockets because they're running. That is not an insurmountable design problem. They're not usually Uh, blowing up in people's pockets, so it's usually batteries that people have left with change in their pockets. (laughs) Almost all of them. There's been a couple, but if you think about it, not any worse than they haven't been able to solve the problem with laptops and cell phones blowing up either. So, But that that, that is... that. (laughs) That laptop, those issues are the kind of things regulators could get to work on. Right. They could they could get to work on, you know, common power supplies. They could they they could you know standardize standardize some of the some of the kind of electrical side of this sort of stuff. And actually, that would be beneficial to consumers. Right. Quite what they would do, I don't know. All I know is that they haven't done it. Um, and therefore, what we're seeing is a focus on the wrong type of regulation designed to deter use and a kind of indifference to the right type of regulation that would provide benefits to consumers. Right. And that, that poor regulation just makes smoking that much easier. You know, the harder that we make vaping, like you're, you're competing with a product where you have to peel off some cellophane, tear out some tinfoil pull one out and light it on fire. Like that is as complicated and as difficult as smoking a cigarette yeah. will ever be. Yeah. And like that, and that, that's the ease that they're competing with. So the, the harder, the more less appealing we make vapor products or any smoke-free products, the harder it is for people to get, the harder it is for people to use, the less appealing it is. All of those things just make smoking that much more readily available, easier, sexier, whatever yeah. the case may be. Yeah, I mean, I, the way I sort of see this, uh, you know, from sort of like a marketing point of view, you have two rival value propositions. There's a value proposition associated with smoking, which is its price, where you can use it, its convenience, how easy it is to buy it, how good the nicotine delivery is, what it tastes like, what the aesthetics are like. All of, all of these things go together to create a to create an experience. Rival value proposition from vaping is the same sort of things. It's do you, is it easy to use? Do you like it? Does it taste good? Uh, does, it satis- does it provide a satisfactory nicotine experience? What about the sensory side of it? What about the aesthetics? What about 
the convenience of using it, how easy is it to buy it, all of those things combine together to create a rival value proposition. And what we've tried to do in public health is degrade the value proposition of smoking by, you know, uh, banning advertising, um, raising taxes, limiting where it can be sold in some countries, plain packaging, um, removing flavors, blah, blah, blah. There's been an effort to try to degrade the smoking value proposition. Unfortunately, that mindset has now shifted into the vaping side of the value proposition, and they're busy trying to degrade that now, when actually the strongest thing you could do would be to strengthen the value proposition to consumers and draw people from a degraded smoking value proposition to a, an enhanced vaping value proposition. I mean, I know a lot of people don't agree with me. You should just leave smokers alone to get on with it. But that's the way the public health uh, approach has been on on smoking, and I can't see that changing. Uh, whereas I can see there's much more to play for in whether you enhance or degrade the value proposition for vaping and, and other combustibles, non-combustibles. Yeah, I, I, I did kind of want to jump in and, and maybe wrap things up. We've, we've kept you a little long, uh, but uh, and I certainly don't want to be the cooler here and shut this down because I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I know our, our audience as well. Um, but I did want to maybe try to end on my favorite thing to do, which is make a statement in the form of a question. Uh, and that being, um, you know, with everything that we've, we've talked about, about misperceptions of, of risk and misperceptions of nicotine and then misperceptions of addiction. And uh, one of the things that really struck me before I got involved in all of this stuff, I went through substance use treatment uh, in early mid 2000s and going through that experience and coming out on the other side and listening to people joke about a chocolate addiction uh, and, 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 and all of the, 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 the sort of cutesy things that people say, Oh, I'm, I'm addicted to the, the streaming Netflix or whatever. Um, to me, that has always struck this chord of sort of diluting the conversation overall about substance use. Mm -hmm. And so sort of expanding on that a little bit and looking at, you know, people talking about how, as we were discussing earlier, you know, uh, th this whole idea of like not even once, like if you pick up a cigarette or, or a vape or whatever, you're instantly addicted for life. That that is also, I think, I I I believe creating hurdles to the larger yeah. conversation about all drugs. And mm. and this is this is I, I sort of offer my own disclaimer and full disclosure here. This is not a veiled attempt to get drug policy people involved mm. in this fight. It is a direct appeal, if you will, that and, and I'm asking you ultimately, you know, does this do you think that this very skewed and 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 propaganda based conversation that we're having about nicotine is devaluing or diluting the the broader conversation about taxing and regulating or legalizing, I hate to use legalizing, but, you know, uh, creating a regulated marketplace for all drugs. Well, that's an excellent and massive final question. <laughs> Statement. Thank you. So, so the big one. Say, yes. So, uh, another hour. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with all of that. Okay. See ya. So, um, uh, oh, look, the language of addiction is, really unhelpful i believe and what one of one of the interesting things that i've been sort of probing colleagues on is what what actually do you mean by addiction um you know um 
and it's quite interesting. There's a there's a thing called uh, an addict. It's called the addiction ontology. Okay, and it's a, a set of standard definitions that are supposed to be used in science, and it's initiated by the journal Addiction, I think. Um, and it's to try to say, well, we should when we use these terms scientifically, we should use them in a way that's consistent, in a way we all agree with. Um, okay. And the definition of addiction has two elements. It's sort of like a, uh, like a, a sort of compulsive use, um, uh, but that persists through serious net harm to the individual. In other, in other words, if there isn't a lot of harm involved, then it isn't an addiction. It's a dependence and it's something different. And they actually say... In, in this, they actually elaborate on that and say, we, we, we focus on the harm because we want to um, separate off uh, issues that we should, that really require a public health intervention. Okay. And this is, the, this is back to the, 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 the distinction between coffee and smoking. You know, it's like, yeah, it's probably there's a lot of people who are quite dependent on coffee and feel a bit weird if they don't have their morning caffeine. I'm one. Um, and um, but it's not something we lose our minds over because there's not a lot of collateral damage associated with it. Whereas smoking, there is and there was a, you know, a lot a large effort to try to control the massive burden of disease that ultimately emerged from smoking. But it, nicotine doesn't fall into that category. Um, and it may, it may be there's some risks associated with vaping, but they're much, going to be much, much smaller, inevitable, than smoking risk. So is that really an addiction if it doesn't have this collateral damage associated with it? And if it's not a, an addiction, how should we treat it in society? Should we treat it the same way that we treat coffee and go, well, we don't, you know, we don't go, well, you know, the problem is you're now a slave to Starbucks and, you know, uh, you're now you're now in the grip of, you know, big coffee. We, we don't Lifeline do that. Lifetime caffeine addict. Lifetime yeah, I mean, you can make the argument. You hear arguments made about nicotine. Well, you know, they've got them as customers. So people are basically being, you know, they're being uh, wrung out for money here because they're they're captivated on this. But that's true of. That's true of a lot of things that people like. You know, they just they they just kind of carry on doing it because they, you know, they they feel intensively that they like it. They get a buzz from it. They, you know, that's and that's where you get back to the chocolate addiction and uh, you know coffee addiction and those sort of things. So, I I think a much more nuanced approach uh, to what nicotine use is. Out with smoking. Forget forget the smoking side of it. What does it mean to be a nicotine user? What are the rewards from it? What who benefits from it? Are those benefits real, or as many in tobacco control would say, are they imaginary? Are they an illusion caused by withdrawal? And what are the costs? What's the downside of being a nicotine user? To what extent is it? Do you have your have you lost your autonomy? Can you ever stop? What if you're a woman and you're pregnant and you want to stop completely? How hard is that? You know, so I, I would like to see, and I, I'm not really well equipped to have this debate because I've not ever used the product, but what, what are the costs and benefits of being an actual nicotine user other than a smoker? 
uh, other than a combustible user? What are the ups and downs of it? And then maybe we could have a more mature debate about nicotine as a pattern of substance or stimulant use that could take its place alongside other legal stimulants like caffeine, like alcohol, increasingly like cannabis. Um, and maybe we could just say, well, let's get to a market for that, recognize that people like it. They're not especially harmed by it. And that includes adolescents, doesn't affect their brains, whatever anyone says. And just get to a rational marketplace for this that is relatively low risk, not necessarily zero risk, because nothing is, within the normal risk appetites of society. And that's the long term that we're aiming for. And a lot of innovation brought in over the next 10 years, plus the right approach to those six environmental things, information, tax, regulation, and so on. And we could get there quite quickly in the United States and worldwide. Well done. <laughs> I think. What the answer? <laughs> Is that right or wrong, by the way? I, I, the <laughs> I, that, I think that would be close that enough for now. It's better than what we've got for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that pretty much covered our last question, too. We were asking what what U.S. should do to stop all this. And you kind of basically answered oh, that All question. the things that you've said this Exactly. <laughs> you actually answered What's that What's wrong question? with the FDA? <laughs> I'll give you a very quick one. I know, I know, I'm going to give you a very quick one. This The important thing is the change of mindset. It's to see this as an opportunity rather than a threat. Right. Everything else is possible once that changes, because then you get CDC behaving much more like Public Health England. And FDA uses its flexibilities, and it has a lot of flexibility to make the path to market for these products much more straightforward. It can use standards. It can, uh, it, it can stop some of the incredible repetition in the PMTA process. It can make findings. It can leave some of the, some of the stuff that are required pre-market. It can shift that to post-market during surveillance. Uh, it could have a de minimis kind of approach to small businesses. There are all kinds of things that it could do if it wanted to do them. It just doesn't want to do them at the moment. And that's the thing that has to change is the mindset. And that's a matter of about probably half a dozen thought leaders in the United States changing their mind or having their minds changed. And I'm really referring to like the Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids, the Bloomberg right. Complex, the respectable body part organizations and all that lot. And then anything's possible. I was going to say you're kind of preaching to the powerless choir here because we don't have any not power powerless. to give that. Not powerless. Not, not how, powerless. How do we change they, they, How do we change they, them? You know? Because reality will leave them um, marooned on a sandbank of idiocy eventually. Uh, you know, reality will just flow right past them. Uh, these products... These, these products are essentially a diffusion of innovation that will displace cigarettes and they'll be somehow fighting these fight. They'll, they'll be doing, you know, they'll be fighting modernity. They'll be fighting progress and that will fairly soon become evident and they'll look ridiculous. And most of them are smart enough not to let it get to the point of being ridiculous. To keep nurturing and working with the voices in public health, which are massively underpowered, by the way, in terms of volume, but there are a lot of them. Look at look at that SRNT 15 president's paper. OK, that's that's where the grown ups are in public health. That's where that's where the serious people are. Now, they're not 
serious in the sense of having making a noise louder than a war, which is what the clowns in public health and their activists and the Bloomberg complex are doing. But that's where the serious thought leaders are. And there's more of them every day. That's a positive note to end on. Yeah, it's more positive. It's more positive than it looks. Yeah, that's awesome. Wow. Thank you. Just thank you across the board for taking the time tonight to come on and rant. Uh, I wish we just had an infinite abundance of time, you know, to, to let you just carry on because we have to have you back. Yeah. I don't think I've ever nodded my head yes so much in two hours before just. All right. Well, I think the day, the danger is if we do it again, I might have a stroke. So I, I need to, I need to, yeah, calm down a bit, but I'd love to do it again. It's great talking to you guys. Uh, yeah. And I really respect everything that Kassara's done and the, the just the incredible fight that you're taking to these kind of naysayers and progress deniers. I mean, uh, I see the alerts. I'm not, not much I can do about them, but I see the alert that state by state, legislature by legislature, battle by battle. That's amazing. If you're listening and you're not a member... Get your pocketbook out, sign up, press the button. Come on, do it. <laughs> These are the right people. Okay. And uh, good luck with the fight. Yeah. Thank yeah. You, thank you so much. All right. And, and yeah, thank you for all of your work. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. You. Okay. You're an inspiration. Right. We're definitely going to get you back, You're but we're going to make sure you don't have a stroke doing it. <laughs> okay. You're the inspiration. All right, folks. See you. All right. Bye. Bye. Clive Bates, everybody. Woo. Yeah, I got fantastic. I got, My I got gosh. Oh, and for everybody wondering, you don't have to break out your pocketbooks to sign up for CASA. It is absolutely free to become a member. Yes. All right. Well, wow. Okay. It's already, we're already two hours and eight minutes deep into this. So I'm yeah, just going to, we we're going to hit the bumper and I'm going to give the floor to Alex for Go some for legislation. <laughs> do we have it? Yeah, we do. Let's do the we thing. Got, yeah, we got some. I gotta calm down. He's got my heart rate up. Jeez. Did that play? (laughs) Yeah, it did. Oh, it did. Okay. I didn't even, it just froze my whole screen for five seconds and then everybody came back. So I don't know. I hope everybody got the loud bumper. They did. It was, it was was sufficient. Yes, indeed. All right, Alex, the floor is yours, sir. What do we need to keep our eyes and ears on this week? Everybody ready for the state-by-state march of of horrible legislation that uh, (laughs) we're all dealing with every every single year. Um, So I'll start with the potentially, well, the the middle-of-the-road news first. In Colorado, um, I still, I think I need to update this with the hearing or the the meeting information. I just found out about this last night. Um, that uh, HB 1064 is still on the move. Uh, the Colorado legislature has seven or less than fewer than seven days left now. Um, as I, when I updated this, it was seven days. So it's probably five or six at this point, uh, meaning that things are going to, there's going to be some pressure to move this thing. Uh, and it is going into the Senate. It has a meeting in the Senate Finance Committee on Monday. Uh, we'll update this. But uh, for those of you in Colorado, uh, the targets are set to contact your senators 
and urge them to oppose this bill. Uh, again, this is the lightning round. So uh, even though it's got a couple of committee hearings, it could end up in some sort of monster session uh, where they just you know stop the clock at midnight and keep going into the next day, even though session officially ends. Um, this That happens kind of frequently. Um, the good news about this bill is apparently, uh, at least within the executive branch in, in Colorado, there doesn't seem to hold, be a whole lot of enthusiasm about this. I'm not going to put a whole lot of weight on that yet uh, because it still has to go through the Senate. Things can get amended. Things could get changed uh, to uh, become more appealing to the governor. We don't know um, all of that to say if you're in Colorado and you haven't yet, even if you have, reach out and touch your senator and let them know that banning vaping and flavors is a bad idea. Uh, and you can do that, of course, on our call to action page. Uh, getting back to moving along swiftly here. Um, let's see. Uh, Alaska, uh, still SB 45 uh, is active. The uh, similar situation to Colorado session ends on the 18th. So a couple weeks here and Alaska's done for the year. Uh, so if you haven't taken advantage of this yet, um, uh, go ahead and send your messages. I know we've had some kind of weak participation in Alaska, although, you know, not a lot of population density there either. Um, so uh, please send your messages in. All of these meetings have obviously already happened. I uh, don't have any more meetings scheduled at the moment. Um, so, uh, please take advantage of the engagement we have up and, uh, get in touch with your lawmakers and urge them to oppose this. This is a tax. It has been changed to a 45% wholesale tax on everything. Uh, and the flavor ban has been removed, uh, which in cases, uh, like, uh, what we see in Hawaii, this may result in all of the antis or the people who support this horrible legislation withdrawing that support. Um, so we don't know yet. But uh, that's kind of where it is. Uh, the next one is going to be Hawaii, as I mentioned, I think. Did I mention Hawaii? Whatever. We're back to Hawaii. Um, <laughs> Man, I feel like we never talk about Hawaii. <laughs> oh, geez. And we've been talking about Hawaii a lot. Hawaii always yeah, has I like mean, half a dozen or more. happening in Hawaii? Yeah, Hawaii always has like a half a dozen or more bills that are introduced. And we go through this kind of shuffle. Um, so this did pass the conference committee this past week. Uh, and uh, again, uh, did I, I can, I'm getting all of these mixed up in my head. Okay. I just didn't write PMTA in here. So HB 1570 was amended with uh, uh, an exemption for flavors uh, or for products uh, given a marketing granted order through FDA. Um, and again, this is another one of the situations where, it's possible to see the antis withdraw their support because of that exemption. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. I don't need, I don't think I need to point out sort of the hypocrisy and irony of that. Um, but God bless him for it. Uh, yeah. yeah just, just stop doing what you're doing. It would be great for all of us. Um, but uh, of course, these are the same groups that advocated for the Tobacco Control Act, helped craft the language, negotiate it with Philip Morris, uh, and uh, have held FDA regulation up as this gold standard. And now, of course, they are uh, going back on their support of that regulation. And so anything that includes a PMTA exemption uh, tends to lose their support over time. 
Um, so I don't have a, an over under on this bill passing, getting signed, all of those things. But we have updated this for folks to send a veto message to the governor of Hawaii, uh, urge them to uh, to veto the bill. Uh, and, and we'll kind of see. Uh, I, I'm still waiting for more details, of course, on sentiment in the executive branch. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. Was but he kind of anti vaping, I thought he was anti tobacco, anti vaping. So I'm not sure. I don't know which I don't know which way he dresses on this issue. So um, we'll see. Um, the final one I've saved the best for last because good news is a great way to end an episode. Uh, and we're going to go to the Wait, before great... you do that, then with good news, you're not doing Washington, are you? I did. It. Was there something for Washington? Somebody asked about it in chat. Washington State. Oh no, that's Washington County, Oregon. Yeah. Well, it's Oregon. Um, I someone was making a joke about how many Vancouver's there are. Jim Gaffigan was making a joke <laughs> about how many Vancouver's there are. So of course, Washington County and Washington State. People are going to get mixed up. No, this is a, a ballot initiative in. It's a referendum in Washington, Oregon. Uh, and for those who are are asking uh, or interested, uh, just to be clear. A yes vote on the referendum is what's needed to overturn the county ordinance banning flavors. So I'm just going to stick with the yes vote. Uh, if you are in Washington County, Oregon, take advantage of the ballot, uh, the, the election coming up. Uh, I forget the date. It is this month. Um, is it middle or end of the month? I want to say like May 17th. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. It's, it's statewide elections, uh, but this, this this referendum is on the ballot in Washington County. Yes vote overturns the flavor ban. Uh, I it's it's not something we can't put up a call to action and get people to send emails and make phone calls to to uh, support the referendum. Um, so it's it's really going to be a, a lot of you know talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to your neighbors. And, and explain to them why that ordinance needs to be overturned. Um, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not a tobacco company, so we don't have millions of dollars to throw into a campaign. Uh, so this is, this is pretty much it. Um, so anyway, uh, that, that is the answer for Washington County, Oregon. And now, I'll, I'll, can I end on the good news? That's why I wanted to get that in there so you could end on Give the good news. Give us all the good news, <laughs> man. Perfect. The good news is that in the Granite State, is that Connecticut? Or is that New Hampshire? No, New Hampshire's live free or die. I'm pretty sure Connecticut's a granite state. Whatever. The great state of Connecticut did uh, managed to allow the flavor ban to die on the vine. Uh, so I, I have yet to update this, uh, but I do. I did have an article. So we'll get the visual aids going here. Uh, as soon as I can, it doesn't matter. There's an article out there and it'll be linked in the description. Uh, for now, we're just uh, showing the Connecticut call to action page, which does, doesn't really offer you any new information here. But uh, yeah, the flavor ban in Connecticut is dead for the year. Uh, and uh, of course, the supporters of all of this horrible regulation have vowed to bring it back next year. So if you're in Connecticut, really, if you're anyone living in New England, you can pretty much expect these policies to come up year after year after year. Uh, they are relentless in their uh, in their zealotry and ideology. Uh, and so good news for now, Connecticut is not facing a statewide flavor ban. 
Uh, special thanks, of course, to everybody who did any amount of work in opposing this. Special thanks to all of our people who participated in this call to action, the boots on the ground, uh, the folks that we talked to pretty much on an annual basis about this dumb policy um, uh, for, for helping to at least, you know, run out the clock on this bill. Um, so good job, Connecticut. Way to go. Thank you for your tireless efforts. And, and I threw the link in the chat we'll, and we'll add it to the description afterwards. Fantastic. So with that, I'm done with the legislative rundown. Woo! <sighs> now everybody it, go out and enjoy your Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely, that is definitely where we're going to wrap this, uh, this episode up. Uh, yeah, one last huge round of applause and shout out to Clive Bates for just being a fantastic human being and understanding the complexities and nuances of all this and having the the compassion to to look past the propaganda and see people as human beings and respect them and give them the dignity that they deserve in all of this. Uh, Clive's just a he's just a hell of a human being, just a hell of a human being anyway. And he doesn't smoke uh, so, or vape, so hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just my neck is more. actually sore from how much I was just nodding. Yeah, I <laughs> it's just like, oh my gosh, now I need a I need a neck massage and everything. Uh, but yeah, huge shout out to Clive. Thank you to everybody uh, in chat today. Thank you for the excellent excellent comments and questions. Uh, thank you guys for sticking around for legislation. The the thirty of you or so who are still here hanging out for legislation. Thank you guys. Thank thank you to all of you. Uh, for anyone here who's not currently a CASA member, you've done almost everything correctly except for that. You need to head over to CASA.org and sign up today. It's absolutely free. You don't have to break out your pocketbook for it. But as Danielle stated, we do have a fancy schmancy donate button just in case you want to break out that pocketbook. You absolutely can. Uh, another great way to help us out and also to just be a, a, a glorious walking billboard for tobacco harm reduction is to check out our merchandise shop check out uh all the the great designs that danielle worked real hard on get yourself some swag for podcast listeners say you made it through this whole spiel now you're about to find out that there's going to be two versions of this available you can check it out uh the full version with clive or you can check out just the shorthand version that i i edit down with basically just alex's rundown of legislation in case you got those quick commutes to work those are available maybe you uh maybe you've been watching the replay and you fast forward to the end because all you care about is legislation you don't even have to do that you can just put in your earbuds or hit play on your phone or whatever head over to soundcloud and and we did break 200 followers on SoundCloud. So to anybody out there right now who's not currently following us on SoundCloud, head over to SoundCloud.com, look up Casa Media, click that follow button. I would love to see some more follows over there uh, or, or really anywhere, all the platforms that we that our podcast goes out to. Danielle said swag, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes absolutely. All this amazing swag here. Yes, weapons of mass disruption. Yeah. We 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 now officially need a design for I for what was it the, the oh. tower of dumb the, the tsunami yeah. of, was it the tsunami of something somebody well, tsunami of all the things of dumbness the tower of dumbness yeah the tower the Empire dumbness. State Building of dumbness we got so many they were <laughs> yeah 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 Danielle's really selling it she's like you know you want to wear these you know you do you know how good you're gonna look in these t-shirts stellar. <laughs> stellar anyways um 
other than that, uh, as far as I know, we're all going to be back here next week. I don't think we have anything uh, going on. We should we be here guest? same time, same place. Did you did you mention the Twitter spaces this coming week? We do have a Twitter space this coming Wednesday. Kristen, who is with us on this this Twitter space? Anyone? I, I don't know about the Twitter space. No, I, know I'll, I can I, fill you in on the details. Alex is up, but I'll fill in. Alex, on Alex knows much more than I do. You guys, yeah. I've been I've been way out of the loop this week. Just to tee bullshit this up. tsunami. That's what it was. Thank you, Skip. <laughs> just to just to tee this up with no spoilers, uh, we are going to have. We don't have a special guest. We are the special guests. Uh, this is going to be a sort of a board panel discussion. Uh, oh, that's this week. Okay, yes. Yeah, and we're 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 gonna we're gonna talk about. I, I I'm just gonna take my own goofy title here: the intersection of bodily autonomy and bodily autonomy. Um, so I'm a big you, fan. I'm a big ad. Make of that what you will. No spoilers, uh, but it should be a lively discussion, and we will do it on Twitter Spaces. Yeah, there's a there's quite a discussion around bodily autonomy these days, particularly in the United States. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm excited to have this conversation. I know Danielle is excited to have this conversation. Danielle yeah. is also a very very passionate bodily autonomy advocate. So. Um, yeah, this is going to be a great Twitter space. You guys follow us over on Twitter at Casa Media. Uh, that is at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, so if you're on the West Coast, that's it's like four or something. If you're over that, yeah, West Coast, you guys don't matter. No, I'm just kidding. We love Danielle you. West says, Danielle says if West you Coast and Best Coast. I just like to tease Danielle. That's all. That's all. <laughs> Danielle says if you want to hear me pop off, tune in. It will be a riot. It'll be a riot. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing that a lot of people are talking about these days is this menthol ban. Um, which next week on our show on Kasalai, we will be having uh, Guy Bentley, another great journalist who great well, wrote this awesome article about the menthol issue. He's written a lot of great articles about vaping, so we will have him on next week. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure a lot of a lot of you here who are also on Twitter, active on Twitter, are very familiar with Guy Bentley. So, are we is this is this like four things in a row where we've had someone with a, a British, Australian, and New Zealand I don't know, accent. but I'm digging it. We're getting all the foreign accents here. So yeah, yeah looking Love forward it. to Guy Bentley. That'll be a good one to tune into as well. Yes, he's in absolutely. he's in New York though. I asked him. I thought yeah, he was. In, I thought he was in the UK still, but yes, he's he in is, New York. He's definitely English. He's yeah. charmingly. Oh, yeah, no. yeah. All right. I think that's it. I think that's all the things. Is done. that all the things? We've got all the groups and the Facebook stuff. Groups. Yo, Facebook groups, you guys. If you live in a state. You have a Facebook group that you can join. <laughs> if you don't live in a state, I, you, you can just still follow the main Kasab pages. You can follow the pages, whatever you want to do regardless. But yeah, absolutely. If, if, you, if you live in a state, you should absolutely join the Facebook state group. Get involved. Uh, you know, we track a lot of legislation um, across the country. But there are small municipalities and small things that make their way through that we don't always catch that a lot of people in our state groups do. And that's that's a huge benefit to everyone around. So please, it's a great way if you're looking for a way to be more involved in all of this outside of just being the amazing human being that you are, you can get into those Facebook groups and uh, and 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 help us help everyone because you guys remember we are Casa, not like Kristen and Alex and me and Jim, whatever. We cumulatively, all of us, we are Casa, and it takes uh, it takes a village. So, from your mouth, right. dear. <laughs> you guys qualify as special. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, we are the special guests. So, so yeah, um, and yeah, like Skip said one last time, happy early Mother's Day. Mm -hmm. 
to all the mothers out there. Um, and I, I guess that's where we're going to wrap it up. That's it. Okay. Well, I just want to do one more thing because Tom loves us all. Oh, Tom, Tom has my heart. You guys, <laughs> I love Tom to death. Anyways, uh, right. that's, that's going to do it for us. We will be back here uh, again. We'll be live on Twitter Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern. Check it out. And we'll be back here next Saturday, as always, 4.30 p.m. Not always. Sometimes we take a week off. But we will be back next week, 4.30 p.m. Eastern. That's it. We're out of here. Be excellent to each other, everybody. Have a great rest of your weekend. We'll see you next time.